When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. This is Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and you are amazing. I need you to know that. Honestly, the more I get to associate with you or bump into you at the grocery store or talk to you online, I am so impressed with your deep, deep love of the scriptures, uh, your deep faith in Jesus Christ, your desire to learn his word, just the goodness of your hearts and, and the, the strength of your spirit. Honestly, I am amazed at the caliber of people I get to associate with as, as we talk shop and study scripture together. And the reason I'm telling you this, yeah, this is no mere pump up speech. Uh, well, actually, maybe it is because we're about to uh, study Isaiah and perhaps you need a pump up speech. Uh, so if we're in the locker room preparing to go out uh, and run out of the tunnel onto the field, uh, please know that you can do this, honestly. Uh, I know that Isaiah can be intimidating. And I think a lot of that is simply that he gets a bad rap as far as, oh, him? A great guy, but impossible to understand. Uh, and there's even old jokes about missionaries that are in uh, hostile territory and they get, they get shot and, and yet the, the, the bullet was, it penetrated part of the Book of Mormon, but not all of it. The Book of Mormon saved their lives and as they opened it and checked, uh, they realized that it stopped right at 2 Nephi chapter 12. Uh, and sure enough, as the old joke goes, not even the bullet could make it through the Isaiah chapters. Uh, in fact, many of you, since I started this channel when COVID hit back in 2020, it was right as the church was going into Jacob and come follow me. And many of you complained that I had skipped uh, Second Nephi and all of those Isaiah chapters. Well, I, I didn't skip them. I taught them at Institute. Uh, I just hadn't been forced online yet. Uh, and so I'm grateful that we get to spend the next five weeks together studying the, the words of Isaiah. Uh, and five weeks is generous. I wish it could be more generous, but as we're trying to sneak in the entire Old Testament this year, we're going to slow down almost to the point of Genesis, uh, which we, we drew out over a long period of time because those stories are so rich and so foundational. Well, the same is true of the words of Isaiah. Great are the words of Isaiah. And guess who gave him that praise? Jesus did. Uh, and so we need to understand just how important it is that we spend the, the necessary time to, to make sense of his divine, divine message. One of the highlights of my time in Nashville was teaching an institute class on campus at Vanderbilt, mostly to graduate students, just incredible souls that were getting PhDs in, in you name the subject, just an amazing array of, of intellect and spirit. And we just, I asked them, uh, what do you want to study next, year, uh, next semester? And their, the decision was Isaiah. I said, awesome. Uh, do you want to do one semester on Isaiah or two? Because uh, we could drag it out. Not drag. We could draw it out uh, and, and spend more time. And that's what they opted for. And so we had a glorious year where we could spend basically an hour each week on two chapters. And then the week after that, do two chapters uh, and then two more the week after until we got through all 66. And, oh, to slow it down and to savor every word and phrase. I don't know if we'll be able to go that slow in the next five weeks, but I am grateful we get to slow things down. And today, especially to begin things, I am hoping to do a verse-by-verse -verse approach, just so that you can get your Isaiah legs under you. 
and I don't know if you remember high school English classes and studying Shakespeare, it usually took me a while to get into Shakespeare to the point that it wasn't some foreign tongue. But once you dig in and start making sense of it, oh, your brain almost shifts gears and you start to think in a British accent. Well, I, don't, I can't promise that we'll think in a Hebrew accent as we study Isaiah. But if we'll slow it down and spend the necessary time there, and I'll, I'll share some, some insights that, or I should say approaches to the book that were game changers for me when I really started studying Isaiah in college. Uh, and so I'm grateful for those teachers that pointed to me in the right, pointed me in the right direction to some, some understanding. And if there's any uh, chance for me to be a similar blessing in your life, then I pray that that's the case. And to God be the glory because this book really does point us to him and connects us to him in powerful ways. And not just in terms of the content, but especially in terms of the approach. And even the fact that it is hard or harder than most scripture, uh, that should point us to God too. And heaven forbid that uh, studying scripture requires some divine aid, right? In fact, listen to this verse. For he truly spake many great things unto them, which were hard to be understood, save a man should inquire of the Lord. Now, you may think that I'm talking about Isaiah there, but actually that was Nephi speaking about his father, Lehi, and the dream that he had of the tree of life and uh, other lessons that he taught. And it's amazing to me that I mean, for us, it seems like Lehi was rather straightforward. Uh, we know what the iron rod meant. We know what the tree of life was and so on. And it's interesting that Nephi would have to tell Laman and Lemuel, yeah, dad said some incredible things but they're not going to make sense until you ask God about it. And this is Nephi after, what, 11, 12, 13, 14, four chapters worth of God revealing amazing truth to Nephi because he asked, he inquired of the Lord. And so that needs to be key for us. That text, which is 1 Nephi 15, 3, uh, I wrote up at the top of my page of Isaiah chapter 1 uh, in the Old Testament, just as a reminder, if I really want to understand these words, turn to the Lord. There's some other things that we can turn to as well, as far as scholarly tools and so on. But pray for the Holy Ghost in the time that we spend together in this incredible book, and it will be a blessing to us. And I can promise you that, because Isaiah, the fact the Lord would single out Isaiah for commendation, for praise, and for a commandment to study. He wants us to spend time here. Uh, and not despite Isaiah's difficulty, but rather because of it. In fact, I'll say this, uh, who quotes Isaiah more than anybody in the Book of Mormon? Nephi does. And you remember what Nephi glories in? He glories in plainness, which makes you think, then why on earth would he quote Isaiah? Since Isaiah gloried in a lot of things, but plainness wasn't one of them. And so, what on earth are you doing, Nephi? If you want us to understand, then why would you quote Isaiah? And that's the point. He would say, oh, I don't need Isaiah to help you understand. You got me for that. I glory in plainness and I want to be crystal clear. The problem is people don't often oh, draw a lot of inspiration and motivation out of oh, instruction manuals. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm trying to get across, crystal clear. When I have an instruction manual, I want it to be, I want it to be prose, not poetry. But if I'm writing a love note to my wife, uh, then I want it to be poetry rather than prose. Uh, it needs to have some emotion and some spirit and some feeling. And, and that's what poetry does. And the book of Isaiah is poetry. Remember when we studied the book of Job? 
that the three chapters people seem to understand are 1, 2, and 42, and those are the three chapters of prose. And the middle 39 chapters that we skip over, that's poetry, which is harder, but it's so much more epic and so much more moving. And that's Nephi's point in bringing in Isaiah. In fact, he says that the first time he introduces him. I, I, I want to say this to you, and then we'll, we'll dig into some helps for Isaiah, and then we'll dig into the book itself. But when Nephi quotes Isaiah, and he does it on several occasions, uh, he has his little brother Jacob quote Isaiah as well. Abinadi quotes Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah. But especially in Nephi's case, anytime he's about to do it, it's like three stages. He gives you a chapter or a couple of verses or whatever before he quotes Isaiah to kind of pump you up. Then he quotes Isaiah. And then he spends the next chapter or, or more trying to explain or re-explain what Isaiah had just given. So we get Nephi's why, followed by Isaiah's what, followed by Nephi's what. And, and I'm grateful for that approach. The, the best example of it is in the big Isaiah chapters that even the bullet can't get through. Okay, that's chapter 12 through 24 of 2 Nephi. And so what would you expect in the chapter before it, 2 Nephi 11? It's all pump up. An entire chapter of pump up speech. Like you can do this and you should. It's important. Uh, he glories in the things that Isaiah glories in. And by the time you're done with chapter 11, it's like, I want to I learn this stuff. I want to study it. And those are the chapters that we'll be studying today. The beginning of the book of Isaiah. By the time you get to chapter 25, though, uh, as you've slogged through uh, 13 chapters worth of Isaiah, uh, you're not quite as uh, oh, footloose and fancy free as you were back in chapter 11. You're not, oh, I should say you're not quite as confident. Uh, if you've, <laughs> if you, I remember being pumped up once to do a 5K when I was horribly out of shape by a stake president in Nashville that had done all kinds of Ironman marathons. Uh, or Ironman man, uh, triathlons, excuse me. And uh, he gave us this amazing fireside about exercise, and then we ran. Uh, it was an institute and YSA activity. It was the Isaiah Fun Run, we called it, because Isaiah said you'd run and not be weary. Yeah, I wanted my money back when I was done. I got weary, all right. Uh, but I joked with the stake president afterwards and said, after your fireside, I was ready to go sign up for an Ironman. Uh, I needed another fireside about... Mm, 3K in, <laughs> I just needed to get, can I, can I get through this? And by the time I got to the finish line, uh, I, was, I was a wreck. And that's kind of how we go through the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. By the time we get to 25, we are bloodied and bruised. It's like we got through a jungle. And when we get to the other side, there's Nephi waiting for us. And he's, I mean, pristine. Uh, looks like he's been on vacation. And he looks at us and it's like, rough journey? Yeah, you're, yeah you think? Well, uh, sorry, not sorry for putting you through it, but let me explain what that was all about. And 2 Nephi 25 is then a beautiful explanation of what Nephi wants us to understand uh, from that, that chunk of Isaiah chapters. Uh, that, again, that's the big one. 11 is pump up, uh, 12 through 24 is here's Isaiah, and then 25 and some more beyond is Nephi's explanation. Now, the first time he's going to quote Isaiah is 1 Nephi chapter 20 and 21. And so what would you expect to find right before chapter 20 and then right after 20, chapter 21? But sure enough, you get introduction at the beginning and you get explanation at the end. And listen to this verse from 1 Nephi 19.23. It's the one where Nephi says that he did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. And that's going to be key with Isaiah also. If it's not applicable, then we're missing the point. 
uh, we have to liken these scriptures unto us. But then he says, basically, in that verse, if, if I want to teach law, for example, I'll quote Moses, because Moses is the great lawgiver. But then listen to this. But that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. Now that's, to me, the best introduction to Isaiah you could ask for. Where Nephi, I know I glory in plainness, I want you to understand it, but I also want you to be persuaded to believe it and to act upon it. I can be crystal clear, and you can nod your head with assent and go, no, that makes sense, okay, I understand. But it doesn't move me to do anything about it, not to change my life. Okay, cue Isaiah. Isaiah, I explained this to them. It's not doing much good. Will you, will you sing into them? Will you, will you worship into them? Will you write poetry to the point that it persuades? Will you give them figurative imagery and, and all kinds of metaphor and simile and, and poetic parallelism and all kinds of things that we'll learn over the next five weeks? Will you make these principles Will you breathe life into them so that that life brings life to, the, to my readers? If you've ever had, if you remember in the mission field, having companions and just different gifts, and you might be the one to be able to oh, connect with people, but you didn't quite know how to explain the gospel very well, or vice versa. You knew the gospel, but oh, getting in a door was scared, scared you to death. Well, Nephi and Isaiah are about as good a, a pair of missionary companions you could ask for. Nephi's clarity and Isaiah's poetry working hand in hand to persuade us to believe in the Lord our Redeemer. Isaiah is the great messianic prophet. No wonder he is quoted more than any other prophet by subsequent prophets. He is a prophet to prophets and he is... Just as Jesus spoke highly of Isaiah, it's because Isaiah spoke highly of Jesus in practically every chapter. As he prophesied of the Messiah, as he tried to point people to him, as he tried to persuade his readers to prepare for him. And so it's as if you had a, oh, a fatal disease called the natural man. And the doctor that could cure you didn't speak your language uh, and wasn't willing to learn yours. He wanted you to learn his. And so let's learn the language of Isaiah today and, and come over, get over whatever culture shock is keeping us from a fuller understanding and pay whatever price is necessary to slow things down and look things up and to pray, pray, pray that the Lord will help us gain insight into these incredible things. I'll say this too by way of introduction. Uh, and again, I apologize if our introduction to this week is a long one, but it's trying to set the stage for an understanding of Isaiah. Okay, this is our, sorry if it's a long pump up speech, but stick around with me in the locker room here for a little while longer. Uh, by the time you get to, if 2 Nephi 11 is the big pump up, and then 12 through 14 is the big Isaiah chunk, then 2 Nephi 25 is the best place to start to see how Nephi explains Isaiah. And there are amazing Isaiah scholars in the church uh, today. There are incredible scholars of Isaiah throughout time. I'm still of the opinion that the greatest Isaiah scholar of all time was none other than Nephi. Well, Jesus, obviously. Uh, but ne the way Nephi approaches it, uh, I'm, I, I'm not going to spend as much time as we might need 
uh, when we get back to 2 Nephi 25 in a couple years, uh, we can go verse by verse. But in that chapter, the beginning of it, Nephi gives us five keys to understand Isaiah. Uh, I think Bruce R. McConkie gave a talk once about 10 keys to understand Isaiah. I think Elder McConkie's list was great, but I think Isaiah, uh, Nephi's is still better. And uh, they're all in chapter 25, and I'll just list them off to you really quick. The first he mentions in verse 1, and he calls it the manner of prophesying among the Jews. It sure would help to know how Jews prophesy, how they write, how they speak, uh, especially when it's a poetic prophet. How do they do that? And so you want to understand Isaiah, let's make sense of symbolism. Let's make sense of Hebrew poetry, and we'll work on that today. The second key is in verse 4, and he says you need to be filled with the spirit of prophecy. Now, I remember once in a seminary class we were studying Isaiah, and I asked, uh, there was a sweet little sophomore girl that was going to give the opening prayer. Right before she started, I said, oh, by the way, since we're studying Isaiah today, please pray that the Lord will bless us with the gift of prophecy. And I remember her jaw just kind of dropped, like, I'm supposed to like draw down the powers of heaven so that we can foretell the future as a class? Are you kidding? And I, I saw the look on her face and thought, oh, oh. no, no, no prophecy needed the way you're thinking. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it defines the spirit of prophecy as the testimony of Jesus. So can you pray for that? Uh, as we study Isaiah, will you pray that we'll read his words through the lens of our testimony of Christ? I said to her, it's kind of like playing Where's Waldo? Uh, if you remember those old books, that once you know that, I mean, the books don't make a lot of sense until you realize, oh, it's like a search for book and I'm supposed to find Waldo. And so look for the, the red and white stripes on the, on the shirt. Well, in a way, the book of Isaiah is playing where's Waldo, but you're looking for Jesus. And so if you have the testimony of Jesus as you're reading his words, it'll be that much easier to recognize the Messiah when he appears. The third key is in verse 5, and there Nephi says, well, you want to understand Isaiah, you need to understand the things of the Jews. And so think about objects or elements that are part of Jewish life or Jewish culture. It would have made perfect sense to his audience. It would have made perfect sense to Nephi. He was not that far removed. Well, we are. And so if an object is mentioned that makes no sense to you, that's a good time to pause and go look something up online or in a Bible dictionary or in any of the study Bibles that are out there available free online or that you can purchase. Uh, there's great Isaiah commentaries and, and I'm not saying you have to go look up every confusing word. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Uh, learning about the things of the Jews is really helpful. The fourth key is in verse 6 and it's to learn concerning the regions round about Jerusalem and to learn the judgments of God which hath come to pass among the Jews. Uh, we would say, go learn Jewish geography, that's the regions roundabout, and go learn some Israelite history. That's the judgments of God that have come to pass among them. Because as Isaiah is speaking of locations, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, for example, the, the tribal inheritances of those two tribes, uh, it helps to know where that is. Or being replenished from the east. Well, what's east of Israel? What, what, what is he talking about? Or again, history. When he talks about the conquering of the Midianites. Uh, or other things of, of Israelite history. The, it's, it's almost like if you have a friend that uh, quotes movie lines all the time. If you've seen the movie, then you realize what they're quoting. Or song lyrics. Same kind of a thing. Uh, or, or historical allusions. And when somebody brings one up, you're like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, that helps with Isaiah also. The fifth and final one, uh, and this is one where we have the leg up on any prior uh, generation of Isaiah students, 
in verse 8 of 2 Nephi 25, it says, you know, it really would help to live in the last days. I mean, that way you're, you're not just reading Isaiah, you're living through its fulfillment. And so think about those five keys. Fifth, you got nailed. We live in the last days. And so as Isaiah is speaking of the latter days, uh, we're, we're living it. The second one comes hopefully to us naturally, and that's our testimony of Jesus. And so if we have second and fifth nailed down, if three and four can often help by looking for some outside resources or reviewing, footnotes are helpful here to be able to go back and see what parts of Israelite history he's referring to. Uh, and, and then the, that leaves the first one. And the first one might be the trickiest. How do I learn to understand the manner of prophesying among a, a prophet poet like Isaiah? How do I wrap my head around symbolism and especially around Hebrew poetry? Well, that's where I want to spend a little bit of time today. Before I do, I'm sorry if I'm scatterbrained, uh, Isaiah will do it to you. I will say, though, that as far as uh, what his normal oh, subject matter is, again, where's Waldo? Uh, look for Jesus. He's, up, con he's constantly speaking of the Messiah. But it's also something I call the Isaiah pendulum swing. He seems to go back and forth frequently between two, uh, two poles, either wickedness or righteousness, either apostasy or restoration, either scattering of Israel or gathering of Israel. We'll see that a ton. Uh, either crucifixion or resurrection. Uh, and it, in fact, years ago, I actually went through every chapter of Isaiah and put a little happy face or frowny face by the chapter heading. Like, okay, this is on the positive side. Here we're seeing righteousness or gathering or restoration or resurrection. And though this chapter, that's a frowny face because we're dealing with wickedness or apostasy or crucifixion uh, or scattering. And some chapters start with a frowny face and then end with a happy face. And some start happy and then go sad and then come back to happy. But just to kind of realize, I, I don't want to oversimplify things, but I sure would love to simplify things. And that's one way to do it. Realize that it's typically... Uh, one, uh, one side or the other as, as the pendulum swings back and forth, and that, that might help. The other, as far as time period is concerned, I call this the Isaiah layer cake, because layer cakes are typically the same shape, and it's just the same, you know, with base, middle, top, and it's just all these uh, circles. And you frost it, and it looks like one big, big cake. Well, Isaiah can get an amazing amount of mileage out of a single prophecy, because the three time periods he tends to focus on are, one, his day, I mean, go figure, he's got issues. His people have to, to navigate things with his help. Second is Christ's day, as he's prophesying messianically, right? The Messiah will someday come. So, and then the third one is our day. And again, we're living it, so it helps us, uh, gives us the advantage when we study Isaiah. And there are times when the exact same passage, same prophecy, fires on all three cylinders. And people of his day would say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And then in Christ's day, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And in our day, yes, that's exactly what's happening. So those are some questions that you can approach the text with. Uh, what time period might he be talking about? And it could be D, all of the above. Uh, what side of the pendulum is he on? Uh, frowny face or happy face? Uh, are, would any of these five tools that Nephi give, recommends to me be helpful to understand a particular passage? Uh, and especially. This to me in college was the great key to understand it all. How does Hebrew poetry work? So let's spend a little time there and then we'll jump into, first, uh, into our first chapter, okay?
Now, to understand Hebrew poetry, let's start with English poetry. In fact, let's start with American poetry. Uh, uh, the, my, one of my favorites uh, was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And as a, as a, was a junior high, I tried to memorize uh, Paul Revere's ride. It's a long one. It took me forever. But I just, it almost feels like you're galloping alongside Paul Revere as, as you read this incredible epic poem. Uh, listen for it, okay? And listen for the gallop, listen for the rhymes. In fact, listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight riot of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or by sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, good night. And then he, when you rush on from there, it's, uh, I, I loved it as a kid. And if you are listening to this as the, as the audio only podcast, you didn't get a chance to see the screen where I just put that poem in front of you, but it didn't look like a poem. It just looked like a big long paragraph. Uh, it's harder to recognize rhyme when it's written that way, honestly. So uh, I, I'll often do this with my students when we're starting to learn Isaiah. I'll put a screen up with just that poem and I ask, does it look like a poem? And they say, well, no. And then I'll read it and you can start hearing and feeling the rhyme and the rhythm. Oh yeah, that's a poem. And I said, okay, what are the rhyming words? And they have to search through the paragraph to start pulling out the words that rhyme. Uh, but pretty soon they see them. Here, revere, year, five, alive, march, arch, tonight, light, see, be, alarm, farm, arm. And then I'll shift things so that it actually looks like a poem. As it's divided up into its poetic lines, and I'll say, does this help? And they're like, oh, yeah, big time. Now can you identify all those rhyming words? Well, of course. And then I'll even ask, can you give me the rhyme scheme? And once they see it, it's not that hard to do. And you go realize, oh, okay, the here, revere, year, that's A. And then five alive is B. So it's an A, A, B, B, A in that first stanza. And then it alternates march, tonight, arch, light. So there's a C, D, C, D. And then it's C, B, and alarm, farm, arm. So you get E, E, F, F, F. In some ways, it's a, a fairly complicated rhyme scheme. But Longfellow was a genius, and so uh, he can do those kinds of things. Well, once they wrap their heads around some American poetry, let's cross the pond and uh, spend some time in British poetry. And one of my favorites is John Milton. Uh, I will quote to them one of my favorite poems because it's about my Waldensian ancestors and the persecution that they faced. And so with this one, again, I'll just show it to them on the screen in mere paragraph form. Does it look like a poem? Well, no. Well, let's listen for it. And does it sound like one? Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold. Even them who kept thy truth so pure of old, when all our fathers worship stocks and stones. Forget not. In thy book record their groans who were thy sheep, and in their ancient fold slain by the bloody Piemontese that rolled mother with infant down the rocks. Their moans the veils redoubled to the hills, and they to heaven. Their martyred blood and ashes so or all the Italian fields where still doth sway the triple tyrant, that from these may grow a hundredfold, who having learnt thy way, early may fly the Babylonian woe. Ah, that poem moves me every time I read it. But is it a poem? And my students will look at it and listen, and 
usually respond, well, yeah, it's a poem, but not the kind that rhymes uh, like, like Longfellow's. And we understand free verse, and so it can still be poem, a poem without having a, a strict rhyme scheme. I said, okay, good. Yeah, you're right. You're right. However, uh, it actually is a rhyming poem. And usually they'll look at me like, what are you talking about? It doesn't sound like it. So, well, the problem was it didn't look like it. Well, now let's make it look like it. And so I'll show them on the screen. This is how it's actually, it appears on, the, on a page when Milton wrote it. And then it's, it's incredibly easy to recognize the rhymes. Words like bones, stones, groans, moans, or cold, old, fold, rolled, or they sway, way, and so grow, woe. And the amazing thing is, despite the fact it doesn't sound like uh, metered and rhyming uh, poetry with, with a strict rhyme scheme, in some ways it's even more strict than Longfellow's. It's an A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, and then a C, D, C, D, C, D. It's, it blows my mind, honestly, once you see it. And you think, yep, Milton was a genius. But if you think Milton was a genius, uh, we're going to take it up, up one more level and go from one of the greatest of American poets to one of the greatest of British poets to the greatest of Hebrew poets, as far as I'm concerned. And that's the prophet Isaiah. And then I'll bring up a text. I usually go with uh, chapter 2 because it's one that's fairly familiar to us. And then I'll ask them, I'll show them on the screen, is this poetry? And they'll look at it and go, no, it doesn't seem like it. Well, part of it is the way it's formatted. Same problem we saw when we first looked at a paragraph from Longfellow and Milton. This looks like just a paragraph from Isaiah, but it's poetry. Uh, and there are study Bibles, and one's online, for example, that you can look up, and it will show you the poetic lines and where they break. Uh, it, it really does make things much simpler to realize, okay, this line rhymes with this line, and so on. And then students will be like, wait, wait, it rhymes? Say, so, well, yeah, can't you, don't, don't you see it? I mean, listen to chapter 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then I'll do for the third time with my students all that same process. Can you, do you see any rhyming words? And they'll scan the text and think, uh, maybe a couple, but it doesn't seem like there's a rhyme scheme. Okay, uh, then I'll, I'll put it out into poetic lines that, with the little, that, that, again, study guides and study Bibles are really helpful for. Now, does it look any like, like it, a, a rhyming poem? It's like, well, I guess you got a lot of couplets, but none of them rhyme. And I said, well, that's where you're wrong. They all tend to rhyme, at least most of them. And they're like, what? It, now, usually there'll be a student smart enough to realize, oh, wait a minute, we're reading a translation. We're reading in English. So... It must have rhymed in Hebrew. Is that what you're saying? I said, yes, it did rhyme in Hebrew. I'm always amazed, like when you go to a foreign country and sing the hymns in church, that somehow they've taken an English hymn from the original, translated it into whatever language, and they still make it rhyme in the new language. It's incredible. Uh, and so, sorry, King James translators, uh, they couldn't quite pull it off. 
Uh, and so, yes, it rhymed in Hebrew, but it doesn't rhyme, doesn't rhyme in English. Does that make sense? And then the students are like, ah, okay, yeah, that, that's good. And I said, well, actually, it does rhyme in English. And in Spanish, and in Portuguese, and it rhymes in American Sign Language. Then they really get confused. Like, what? I said, that, that's the, the miracle of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, is that it rhymes in every single language that you translate it into. And that by then they're intrigued and confused and, and demanding an explanation, which I give them. I said, here's the difference. What does it mean to rhyme in terms of the English mind? It's sound. A rhyme is a repetition of sound, usually at the end of a line. So that's the difference. When it comes to Hebrew poetry, yes, there are rhymes, but it's not by sound, because that would get messed up in translation. What rhymes in Hebrew poetry is the idea itself. Now let that sink in. And that was the single greatest explanation or the key that helped make sense of Isaiah to me when I really started to study it years ago. If you don't remember anything else about understanding Isaiah, remember this. Ideas rhyme in Hebrew poetry. What I mean by that is he'll say something and then typically he'll repeat himself using different language. Uh, I remember saying this to a seminary class once and one kid raised his hands like, wait a minute, this is incredible. I don't have to understand 66 chapters of Isaiah. I only have to understand 33. Uh, I said, well, kind of. I, I understand your math. Okay, well done. Uh, it's not quite like that. But if you get, if there's a line that's confusing to you, then try to read the line right before or the line right after. And often it will clue you in to what he's talking about. In fact, in that same text that I just read, you ask somebody, what's the mountain of the Lord? And they might think, uh, Sinai? Okay, good option. Uh, but is it Mount Hermon in the New Testament or Mount Tabor? Is it Mount Ebal or Gerizim? Is it Mount Carmel? Uh, there's lots of scriptural mountains. What's the mountain of the Lord? Well, you look at that passage in, in chapter 2 when he says, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And then he repeats it. To the house of the God of Jacob. Oh, the mountain of the Lord is the house of the God of Jacob. It's the temple. And that's an easy one for us because we're used to associating those. But that's the idea behind this poetry. So go back to Isaiah 2 and see the poetic lines. It shall come to pass in the last days. Now he's just setting up the time period. And then here's a rhyme. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Let me say that again in slightly different words. It shall be exalted above the hills. Okay. He doesn't worry about meter and matching syllables or anything like that. All nations shall flow unto it. Now, sadly, the verse ends there, but what's the next line? And many people shall go. So all nations shall flow, many people shall go. Oh, that actually rhymes in English. That's helpful. And shall say, come ye, let's repeat that, let us go up. So come on, let's go. Where? To the mountain of the Lord. Let me repeat that. To the house of the God of Jacob. Now, what will happen when we get there? He will teach us of his ways. Now, let me repeat that a slightly, from a slightly different angle. We will walk in his paths. I mean, it's cause and effect, but there's this beautiful parallelism. If he's teaching us, then yeah, we're learning and wanting to live it. Keep going. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Let me say it again. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, some words seem to be missing there. The word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem just like the law shall go forth from Zion. He shall judge among the nations. Let me say that again. He shall rebuke many people. 
His judgment, to the wicked at least, is a rebuke. And then, beautiful uh, rhymes, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Let me say it again. Their spears into pruning hooks. And then one last rhyme. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, what's a plowshare? What's a pruning hook? Uh, that might be help. That's Jewish stuff or just agricultural stuff. Uh, and if you're not a farmer and don't get it, well, we might need to look it up. But you understand, is this giving you some confidence? I really, really pray it is. Uh, to slow things down in your study. And even if you don't have a, a book that separates it out visually, even in our King James Version page, you can look down and see the rhymes start to appear. Sometimes it will be, oh, by the way, it's called synonymous parallelism. I mean, parallelism is the basic form. It says something and it says something that's in parallel. Synonymous, and there's a bunch of different types of parallelism. Synonymous parallelism is when the parallel is a synonym. I'll say it and I'll say the idea again, the same idea in similar terms. Uh, then there's the opposite, antithetical parallelism. That's when he'll say something and then the rhyme kind of reverses it where it was like happy face, frowny face, okay, in the same couplet. Uh, we saw a truckload of that style. Uh, it wasn't poetry necessarily, but we saw uh, those in the, in the Proverbs last week, right? That this is good, but that is bad. And it gives you a comparison that, again, persuades you to choose the better part. And that's Isaiah's purpose, is to persuade us. Uh, there are times where he'll say something and then say it again a little stronger and then say it again a little stronger. So it's kind of this crescendo. The technical term for that is anabasis, which is this stepping up. That's the crescendo. And it has an opposite, which is a decrescendo that's called catabasis. And that is, well, they will mount up like wings of eagles. Let me say that again. Let me rhyme it, but a little softer. They will run and not be weary. Let me say it again a little softer. They will walk and not faint. And I'm not talking softer as in volume. I'm talking softer as in imagery. To, to soar with the eagles? What? That's what happens when, when you trust in the Lord? Yeah. And in lesser ways, you run and you're not weary. In lesser ways, you walk and you're not faint. So again, whether it's crescendo or decrescendo, those are beautiful ways that Isaiah is trying to paint a mental picture and move you to do something. Uh, one of the most famous and complicated is called chiasmus. It comes from the Greek letter X because if you looked at it and set it up in poetic lines, it would look like an X, at least the, the left half of the X, because it goes in and then comes back out. And the idea is the first line and the last line are the rhymes, and then the second line and the second to last line are rhymes. And then the third line and the third to last are, are, are rhymes. And it kind of works its way together uh, they, they offset it a little bit to help you see the rhymes. That's why it ends up looking like half of the letter X. And then by the time you get to the middle, the crux of the X, that you have a synonymous parallelism side by side, and that is the climax. You kind of get crescendo and then decrescendo and climax in the middle, and that's the point of the chiasmus. Uh, the Book of Mormon has all of these kinds of figurative language uh, literary devices also, which is amazing comes from the same cultural background. So of course it would be that way. And Jack Welch or John W. Welch uh, is the one who discovered chiasmus in the Book of Mormon as a missionary, because I mean, what else do you do on P-Day besides discover chiasmus in the Book of Mormon? That's, I'm sure we all did that kind of stuff on P-Days, right? 
yeah, no, no, we're, we're not quite Jack Welch material. But uh, it's to see Isaiah do that magnificently, some simple ones, some more com complex ones, uh, it really is amazing. Sometimes my students will say, but why would you do that? And well, one answer, why did Isaiah do it? Because he could. <laughs> he had that linguistic gift. Uh, why, did I, why did Elder Maxwell speak so eloquently? Because he could. When, when Moroni complains that I, I'm trying to teach the loftiest things in, in existence and I can't do them justice because I don't have the gift of words sufficient for that task. I don't think Isaiah had to make that complaint. And Moroni, you did fine, so don't worry about it. Uh, and Elder Maxwell didn't have to complain about that. That was his gift. And again, if your gift is to say things in such a way that it is as eloquent as what you're trying to describe, how oh, this on that lofty level, then, then stretch and reach and try and pray and study and ponder and, and try to come to an understanding. Because in, through the process, it will persuade you. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. And Isaiah is painting poetry with these word images and simile and metaphor and symbol, symbolism and oh, hyperbole and, and illusion. And it really is a literary masterpiece. One of the greatest things ever written. And... And it does persuade me to believe in the Lord, my Redeemer, in, in profound and beautiful ways. So is that enough of an introduction? Are we ready to go? I mean, I think the other team's been waiting for us for a while. Uh, the crowd's getting a little antsy, okay? The national anthem was a long time ago. And so can we rush out onto the field and turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 1? We'll start right there at the beginning and go verse by verse this week. Uh, as particularly in this opening chapter, God through his representative, Isaiah, is making his case against Israel. Turn to chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll see it unfold. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. By now, time period-wise, this is roughly 740 to 700 BC. That's the, basically the, the timetable for Isaiah's ministry. Remember when we saw the split between Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom uh, shortly after the reign of King Solomon? Uh, and Northern Kingdom was called Israel and Southern Kingdom was called Judah. Capital of the North was Samaria, capital of the South was Jerusalem. Well, if Isaiah is prophesying concerning Judah and Jerusalem, well, guess which kingdom he is ministering to? Yes, he is a Southern prophet. So he's there in the, in the, among the tribes of Judah. And it goes on, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So if we were to go back to 2 Kings and see that time period unfold, again, about 40 years, give or take, uh, the more, most famous of that bunch is Hezekiah. With Hezekiah's tunnel, with the, the strength uh, of, of being able to stand up to the Assyrian army, uh, we saw some things back at the end of 2 Kings when we studied it, that Isaiah makes his appearance there. And Isaiah is trying to reassure and calm down King Hezekiah and counsel him in righteousness. Well, now that was from Hezekiah's perspective, or the historical. Now we get to see it from Isaiah's perspective, the, the prophetic and the theological, the poetic. Okay? So that's the time period uh, that, that we're going to be dealing with. 
and the world superpower at the time is the Assyrians, and they're going to factor in heavily, especially in, the, in what we study today. In verse 2, this is really where it all begins. Verse 1 was just the introduction of who's the, who is this coming from and what's the time period. So verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This is going to be a court case, and he's calling uh, everyone into the courtroom. By the way, Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, begins with almost identical language. Uh, with God uh, trying to explain why the apostasy took place and why the restoration is now ready to unfold. So calling everyone to attention. It's a, a profound beginning. So hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. He's presenting his opening arguments in his case against Israel. And he says, this is what I have against you. I have nourished and brought up children. And that's the metaphor he wants to focus on. He's not saying, I'm the king and I'm trying to rule subjects. No, this is much more personal and relational to him. I am a father and I am trying to nourish and bring up children. But what happened? They have rebelled against me. So two verses in, and really only one verse, uh, since the first was just introductory. Here's the Lord through his, his uh, defense attorney presenting the argument uh, and beginning to, or at least to address the accused, this is what they stand accused of. My children, the house of Israel, have rebelled against me. And then the real poetry begins with some symbolism. Verse 3, the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Now, this is where we need to put on our, our Hebrew poetry glasses and slow down and look for some parallels to see what he's saying. Now, this is one big metaphor, right? The ox knows his owner. Let me say that again in a slightly different image. The ass, the donkey, his master's crib. Now, he skipped a word, but if we see the parallelism, what? oh, the ox knows his owner and the donkey knows his master's crib. And by crib, we mean the, the stall where he is cared for and fed. And so here Isaiah is beginning with a metaphor that they would all be familiar with, his audience, uh, that are taking care of animals, right? These are beasts of burden, and whether it's an ox or an ass, they know who owns it and who provides for it. Now, what's the Lord been trying to do back in verse 2? I've been trying to nourish, oh, there's the donkey in the crib, and to bring up children. Uh, it's a kinder metaphor, or a kinder way of just approaching it than uh, I'm, the, I'm the owner and you're the beast of burden. But by using this example and then flipping it, so we see a parallel, it's synonymous, okay? Ox knows his owner, donkey knows his, the crib the, who, who's feeding it, and now let's flip it over and give the opposite. But Israel doth not know, and let me repeat that idea, my people doth not consider. Now, what doesn't Israel know? What don't God's people consider? Well, that's where the poem helps explain things. Because as we're seeing these parallels and what's left out in the second, it's, it's hinted at. You always kind of wait for that or hope that the, the word, the echo, uh, the rhyme lingers in our ear. And so what do they not know? They don't know what the ox knows, which is who owns you. And what you don't consider is the very thing that even a dumb donkey can consider. It knows where, it's, where the next meal is coming from. I mean, in some ways, Isaiah's being pretty harsh, very 
And maybe that's why it needs to be a little poetic. It softens things a little bit. Like, do you know, do you understand that I just totally thrashed you? Uh, talk about a burn. You are worse than dumb animals, ancient Israel. Because, I mean, the old saying that you bite the hand that feeds you, that's bad enough. But to completely ignore the hand that feeds you? Uh, this is what Elder Maxwell used to say about the fish that's unaware, blissfully unaware of who changes the water and adds the flakes. And that's us. Swimming blindly in our bowl, just there in the barn, oh, thinking that food just magically appears. And so Israel, why would you rebel against a father who loves you, who knows you, who provides for you? as at least has been trying to all these centuries of Israelite history. Will you come back unto me? Then he's going to begin to describe really what, they're, what they've become through their willful ignorance. Verse 4, listen to these repetitions. Ah, sinful nation. Let me say that again. A people laden with iniquity. That goes back to that beast of burden imagery. What, what, what burden is on your shoulders? It's your own iniquity. You won't shrug it off. You won't get rid of it. You won't repent. Let me say it again a third time. A seed of evildoers. Let me say it a fourth time. Children that are corruptors. Not just corrupted, but corruptors. That's even worse. I mean, is that a crescendo? Eh, you're sinful. Well, you're laden with iniquity. <laughs> well, you're, you're the seed of evildoers. It's like the family tradition for you people. In fact, your own children are corrupting everyone else around them. How oh, the exact opposite of what I'd hoped through the Abrahamic covenant. Well, let me give you another set of rhymes as you continue in verse 4. They have forsaken the Lord. Let me say it again. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. And let me say it a third time. They are gone away backward, moving in the wrong direction. From verse 5 through about verse 15 then, Isaiah makes the case against Israel. He says in verse 5 and 6, Why should you be stricken anymore? And then he rhymes it. You will revolt more and more. I mean, you're stricken, you get this sickness metaphor, this imagery, revolt, you're rebelling, you're fighting against God. Yeah, then, he, then he goes back to this imagery of, of sickness. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. So he's focusing on the head and the heart. You're not thinking straight, there's the head. You're living in fear, there's the heart. And then he expands it beyond just those two body parts. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. This is becoming a little more graphic. It's kind of disgusting when you think about it. And I'm looking at Israel. What Isaiah is trying to do is hold up the mirror before them. Do you see what I see? Uh, as a trained physician, I'm seeing some symptoms that really concern me. Are you not aware? Have you not felt that faint heart, that light head? Have you not, do, can you not see the wounds and the bruises? I mean, even the smell of a putrefying sore. Now, if it was Nephi talking, what would he say? You've been wicked. Oh, okay, yeah. Thanks for being crystal clear. Uh, but if we're not persuaded to do anything about it, okay, cue Isaiah. And here's Isaiah <laughs> weaving this tapestry of incredibly poetic, rich uh, language. Can you not smell the stench of your own sin? Those festering sores that are just working within you. 
how if you don't find a physician, if you don't come to the doctor, if you don't get it out of you, this is, this is leprosy and it's eating you from the inside out. He finishes in verse 6, they have not been closed, these open wounds, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. And that idea of ointment, what would they anoint them with? with oil. Ah, yes, the anointing oil. Anointing is what you do for priests and kings. The anointed one is where we get the word Messiah in Hebrew or the word Christ in Greek. Ah, what will finally heal you of these putrefying sores? Nothing short of the atonement of Jesus Christ. So change, come to him. The, the, the doctor is in, so please come. In verse 7 and 8, he shifts his, his imagery somewhat. If, if, uh, if medical metaphors don't work for you, I mean, that was a good one. The Israelites would have been moved by that one, I'm sure. Even the thought of a putrefying sore, they would have known, wait a minute, according to Jewish law, that makes you ritually impure. You have to leave the camp. Are you casting this out? Uh-huh. Uh, you have to cleanse yourself. Is that what you're asking of us? Oh, you better believe it. I mean, this is the woman with the issue of blood. This is the leper that Jesus cleansed. This was the cleansing of the leper ritual that we saw back in, in Leviticus. This is the good Samaritan uh, binding him up or, or his wounds, g g giving him wine and oil. Uh, to help him, taking him to an inn to be cared for. Um, powerful, powerful imagery. But if the medical one doesn't work for you, let me shift to one that has to do more with oh, military. I remember as a, as a young seminary teacher, I had a, a student, female student, had the courage to come to me once and said, you know, Brother Halverson, I don't know if you noticed, but most of your metaphors are sports. I know you were an athlete in high school, although I'm sure she couldn't tell anymore. Uh, and I, I'm sure that works for a lot of the students, but some of us don't care about sports, uh, whether we understand the metaphor or not. And that was really helpful feedback. And so I'll try to work in some different kinds of analogies. I, I apologize. Uh, and in fact, it hit me once. So often in the scriptures, they will use marriage metaphors and family metaphors. We saw that at the beginning, my children, I'm bringing them up, but they're rebellion. And for some members of the church and others, that's a painful metaphor because they have not yet been blessed with the blessings of family. Uh, and so I would simply say if a marriage metaphor or a family metaphor is hard, then find a different one because the scriptures are full of them. And here's a different version in verse 7 and 8. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. You hear the rhyme in that? Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now, a stranger would be a foreigner. Someone from outside the land of Israel is coming in to lay waste to it. What's about to happen? It's during Isaiah's ministry that the northern kingdoms are scattered by Assyria. He's, he lives through the scattering of Israel. And here at the beginning, he is warning the people about it, prophesying of it. Uh, it will happen about near the midway point uh, of, of the book of Isaiah. Uh, and so to see how he deals with the lead up to the scattering of Israel and its aftermath is really amazing. Uh, we'll see a very a marked shift in his perspective and his approach. But here is what's, is what's happening. And sure enough, the Assyrians are going to come and lay waste, especially to the northern kingdom. 
So strangers coming in, you better believe it. He then goes on, the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard. I'll repeat that with different image. As a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Let me give you another one. As a besieged city. Now, which of those three rhymes makes most sense to you? Because once you realize that he's rhyming, uh, if you don't get all three, what, is, do any of them help? Because if one helps you picture something, then you can justly assume that the other two are painting a similar picture. Okay? For me, a cottage in a vineyard, eh, I'm from California, but not from wine country, so I'm not very familiar with vineyards. A lodge in a garden of cucumbers, I don't have a green thumb, so I don't even know what that looks like. But a besieged city, well, I, I saw Lord of the Rings and the Battle of Helm's Deep. I, I can get a sense of a besieged city. We've seen a lot of that in the Old Testament already, and there's some of that in the Book of Mormon too. It sounds, I mean, he's already told us that it will be desolate and burned and strangers will come. And, ah, oh, so what's left? You remember back in the days uh, of that siege that was laid to the point that they're fighting over eating their own children. Uh, that was back in 2 Kings, and that's horrifying. And to think of that level of devastation when you are starving to death. People are dying around you left and right. There's not that many survivors. And if that's the case, can you picture a cottage in a vineyard? Vineyard seems like a lot of space spread out, and there's just this one little cottage there. Or a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. This does not sound like a high population density. It sounds like the exact opposite. It sounds like isolation and desolation. It sounds like loneliness and solitude. And that's exactly what the northern kingdom will look like once the Assyrians come and scatter everyone. Sure enough, verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Small as if it was all that was left after a city was laid under siege. Small enough to fit into a cottage in a vineyard or to pack into a lodge in the middle of a garden of cucumbers. Just this very small remnant. If it weren't for the Lord that left us that, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. We know enough of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two cities become synonymous. That now can you see the synonymous parallelism there at the end? Man, the Assyrians are coming and they are going to lay waste to our territory until there are very few people left, just a remnant. And that is a word that will mean a lot to Isaiah and his audience. And the Lord will preserve that, that righteous remnant. He'll hold on to this little piece, the, the, this group of people. And, and from this leaven, he'll begin to leaven the lump, okay? But let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. Yes, the, scat the gathering is on, its, is on the distant horizon. But the scattering is what I'm talking about first. And if it weren't for that little remnant that he's preserving, we would have ended up no better than Sodom and Gomorrah, where there were no survivors. I mean, once, uh, once Lot and his daughters were able to escape, uh, and once Lot's wife looked back, there was no righteous remnant remaining. And that's what I'm afraid of as these Assyrians are bearing down on us. Where will the ten righteous required come from? Well, turn to verse 10 and get the message. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. 
Let me say it again. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now, I already called your attention at the beginning of this chapter, but uh, are, are you with me now? Did I wake you up with some of those metaphors, some of that poetic language? And who am I speaking to? Well, I'm speaking to the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. And those be fighting words. There's not an Israelite within his hearing that isn't going to catch the hint that he just dropped. You're saying that we're no better than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, not if you don't repent. So listen up. And here's his message, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Now, that's a fascinating verse because what he's, what the Lord is doing here through Isaiah is taking their offerings and throwing it right back in their face. What good does that do me? I, I don't care at all about your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, the blood that you shed from these animals. And you can picture Israel going, what are you talking about? We've been doing this since the days of Moses, since the days of Abraham. Well, actually, since the days of Adam and Eve, right? And you always demand sacrifice. We do it morning and night. Well, that's the, the problem is, what's the point of all of that? Israel, you are going through the motions. And yeah, you may be doing the right things, but not for the right reasons. Certainly not with your head and heart in the right place. Remember, those are the body parts he specified earlier on. Actually, years ago, I did a study on worship in the Old Testament. And as I studied it, what blew me away was how frequently this kind of language appears, where the Lord seems to reject sacrifice outright. It, to me, it's, it would be like, oh, it would be like sacrament meeting. And have you ever been there in the meeting when the priest says the prayer and does it wrong? And the bishop looks over and just nods, or shakes his head, and the poor priest has to repeat the, the prayer. Well, can you imagine the bishop, instead of just looking over and, and shaking his head, like going ballistic? Uh, even if the priest got it right, imagine if the bishop stormed over to the sacrament table and just cleared it all off. Like Jesus cleansing the temple. This is the, a, a pretty close equivalent. And there's trays like flying through the, through the chapel, right? And the, the water cups and the, and the bread is scattered all over the place. Or imagine you taking your tithing before we did it online uh, and handing your tithing envelope to the bishop and the bishop just taking it and not even looking at it, but looking at you as he tears it up, check or cash and all, and then just throws it back in your face. Can you imagine how shocking that would be? That's what the Lord is saying here, though. So what's the point of these animal sacrifices? I'm sick of it. I don't want any of it. He'll even get stronger by the end of the book of Isaiah. In some ways, it's bookended, start and finish, with this rejection of worship. Because as I've said before, as we studied worship, it's not just what you do. It's what you do because of what you feel about what you believe. And if you don't believe it, and you don't feel the kinds of things that make you want to offer sacrifice in the first place, then your sacrifice means nothing to me. Why should it? It meant nothing to you. That's what Mormon wrestles with. If it's not, without, if it's not with real intent, then it's counted evil before God. So get some intent. And that's what the Lord is getting at here. In fact, the first three words unlock, the, it's the key to unlock verse, verse 11. 
To what purpose? How do we say that in one word instead of three? Why? To what purpose? Why are you doing this? Does that ever cross our minds? Why take the sacrament? Because if we're not thinking about that, then maybe it is time to scatter the trays. Why do you pay tithing and give offerings? Because if, if there's no reason behind it and it's just going through the motions, mindless worship doesn't do much. Because it's not the giving that God is asking for. It's the changing within us. And if that's not happening, then what's the point of what we're doing? Those were just means anyway. And the ends isn't taking place. And so to what purpose? He goes on in verse 12, the second half of his question. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? So you're coming to the temple, which is what, where they would go to offer these sacrifices. Uh, so this is another worship verse, but it's a different question. The first time, it was to what purpose? Why? This time, it's who hath required this? Who's making you do this? Who's asking? And of course, the answer is, well, God is. Okay, I know that. Do you? That's what blows me away about the kind of worship that God rejects is we can't answer the why or the who. All we know is the what, and so we do it. We probably know the when also, since it's just rote and ritualistic in a bad way. And, and so we just do it every Sunday, or we do it when we're, when we're expected. But if we have lost sight of the why and the who, then it's time for a wake-up call. And Isaiah's given him one. So here's, how's this for rejection of ritual worship? Verse 13 through 15. Bring no more vain oblations. And vain you can take in either meaning of the word. Uh, is this to no purpose? <laughs> because that, that, to what purpose is what I'm asking. So that is totally in vain. doesn't do anything for me. Or the other side of vain. Is this just so that you are seen of man? That's what Jesus got after them for. You're disfiguring your face when you fast? Are you praying on the street corner to be seen of men? Oh, no. No more vain oblations. Keep going. Incense? That's an abomination unto me. Incense. That's supposed to be the sweet smell ascending to heaven. That's the prayers of the saints. When your prayers look like spit wads stuck to the top of your ceiling, because that's as high as they got and no higher, then, yeah, those ones didn't reach the divine ear. Your incense is an abomination. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. I mean, he can't even finish the sentence. He's so disgusted. I, I, I can't. I, get, get it out of my face, okay? It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting, that probably isn't so solemn the way you guys are doing it. Oh, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. You get the idea of that, oh, that idea that's rhyming there? When you spread forth your hands, there's this prayer, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. That's the same idea repeated twice. And why? Your hands are full of blood. Well, isn't that what happens when you give, give blood sacrifice? Oh, that's not the kind of blood I'm, I'm talking about. That's not the kind of offering that I'm after. There is a, a powerful undercurrent through the Old Testament of, wanting, of the Lord wanting us 
to truly understand what worship is meant to accomplish, why we do it, who it's for, in fact, who we're supposed to be connecting with and who we're supposed to be becoming like. And Israel had missed the boat on all of that. And like I said, we'll see more of this. So keep an eye out for it. Well, that's the case against Israel. I got their attention, okay? Listen, here. Uh, I, I gave some metaphors at the beginning of from the ox and, and the ass to the... Uh, to putrefying sores, I've gone agricultural uh, or husbandry, I've, go I've gone uh, medicine, I've gone military. Do any of these resonate with you? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, can I be any more obvious? Uh, but once you understand what you've been doing wrong, it's amazing how quickly God shifts from justice to mercy. And that's what he does from verse 16 through 20. Wash you. Let me say that again. Make you clean. Let me say it again. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Now listen to this pair. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. I love that, that combination. Stop the bad and start the good. He goes on on the good side. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Those are always the protected classes that the Lord always keeps an eye out for. And if you will focus on meeting their needs, again, the first half of washing you, putting away evil, ceasing do, from doing evil, can you eliminate your sins of commission? Because that will move you from a telestial level where you're doing evil up to a terrestrial level where you stopped. Well, that's not where we end, though, uh, because there's still more mountains to climb and that's where the second half comes in. Let's add positive. Let's take care of others. Let's serve. Let's, if we eliminated the sins of commission, the first half, then we can eliminate the sins of omission, the second half. King Benjamin does the same thing, by the way. Uh, there's all kinds of places. Dr. Covenants does. It's really amazing to see that, that thread run throughout it as well. But it's overcoming sins of omission that then lift us from terrestrial living up to celestial life. Uh, it's justification and sanctification. There's Aaronic and Melchizedek. There's all kinds of different uh, models that map over the same, the same idea. But we need to over overcome all of that and begin doing better. And then this famous, famous verse in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And I love that he would say, I want to talk. I want to reason. I'm not just calling the shots and making demands, though I could. No, I want you to understand it, because otherwise you'll just keep going through the motions uh, with some kind of obedience that's only skin deep. But if we can reason together to the point that you understand why and who and not just what, then notice what can happen. You'll be moved to repentance, and here's my promise. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow and yes, it does snow occasionally in Israel. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now we're getting used to looking for parallels and finding poetic rhymes. Did you catch them? We go from scarlet to white snow, and then we go from crimson red to wool. And what color can we assume the wool to be? White. It's the same parallel. In some ways, if you remember taking the SAT or the ACT, it's those syllogisms. This is to this as this is to this. 
and you're supposed to fill in the blank of whatever's missing because you're looking for relationships. And if you understand the relationship in the first pair, then it makes sense it's the same relationship for the second pair. And so here's Isaiah's syllogism there. But the irony is, is the color that he picked, if you think about it. In our, in our culture, in our perspective, what word is usually chosen for evil? Well, we usually say black because you think of darkness, okay? This lack, this absence of light. And so what would we normally say? Though your sins be as, as, as darkness, if they are black, they will eventually become white. And what's interesting about that is, I mean, we're so used to this verse, it doesn't even strike us as odd. But since when is red associated with evil? Well, maybe that's why we, we, we picture the devil in a red jumpsuit, uh, which again is, is comical. Uh, if you're a BYU fan, you probably love this verse because you can throw it in the face of the University of Utah and say, see, even scripturally, crimson red is associated with sin. Well, I, I beg to differ after my eight years up at the University of Utah, okay? Uh, both schools are great. But the, but the idea here is the metaphor. What is Isaiah trying to get you to think of? Because he's already talked about your hands being full of blood, and you, I don't delight in the blood of bullocks. They often say in, in psychology that if, you're, if you drop hints, you can almost get someone to say what you want them to if you're dropping hints that move them in that direction. Uh, you start using words that rhyme with the, the word you want them to choose. Or you, you have them see, look at things of a certain color, and then here's a choice, and they pick that color. Some interesting things. And so Isaiah is dropping some hints. He's mentioned blood several times already, and then he says, you know, if, even if your sins are scarlet, crimson red, think blood, they can be white as snow. In fact, they can be white as wool. Now, I don't know if wool is automatically going to be thought of as white. Uh, sheep can be all kinds of different colors. We saw that back in Jacob's day, right? Uh, and especially if they're living out, I don't know how many pristine, uh, spotless white little lambs there are out there. But maybe that's the point. He's, he's not worried about the color so much anymore. Because he has already got that nailed with white as snow. That one's as pure as you can get. The night that you have white on the mind already, let's bring in another element, and that's wool. What am I trying to get you to think of? Sheep. Is that on the mind as we've talked about animal sacrifice? Because if you think about the blood, red, of the lamb, wool. Let's reason together, because that's the only thing that will save you. I love this verse because of what it suggests. And if you'll slow down and take the time to ponder the choice of symbols and what he's trying to get you to picture in your mind, then I am seeing pa a Passover lamb. I, where's Waldo? He's right there. I'm seeing Jesus. And I'm seeing a suffering servant, a Messiah of mercy, who is willing to shed his own blood so that we can be washed and cleansed like he asked us to do in verse 16 and 17. I, I'll make it possible for you. So sit down and let's talk it over. If you think you've gone too far or done, done too much, then reason with the Lord and let him convince you of his endless mercy 
to the point that your blood will be washed away in a sea of his own. And though our blood tends to stain our raiment, and his for that matter, his blood purifies ours. It's amazing how that happens. The blood of the lamb. Then verse 19 and 20. This is another set of a rhyme here, but it's an if-then rhyme. Okay, cause and effect. If ye be willing and obedient, that's our part, now the then, his part, ye shall eat the good of the land. That's his promise. Let me repeat it. But if ye refuse and rebel, so here's flip it over, here's the antithetical parallelism. If ye refuse and rebel, then what about the then? Ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Is that motivational? Have I been sufficiently persuasive? Well, wickedness is then condemned, loud and clear, in verse 21 through 24. He says, how is the faithful city become an harlot? He's bringing in all kinds of metaphors, and this one's a pretty uh, stark one. This prostitution. You were supposed to be a faithful city, and instead you've become a prostitute. In other words, you're unfaithful to me. This is covenant infidelity. And we'll see that acted out in the book of Hosea. We'll see it talked about in Jeremiah. Here, it's, here it is in, in Isaiah as well. He goes on, It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Let me give you another uh, metaphor for that. Thy silver is become dross. That's where your impurities outweigh the precious metal. The, thy wine is mixed with water. Can you picture such a diluted discipleship that there's no flavor left? Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. They're supposed to be leading princes, and yet they're following evil. Everyone loveth gifts. That's bribery. And followeth after rewards. There's your worldliness. There's your materialism. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. Oh, how could they? These judges, these leaders, they're only looking out for themselves. And so, of course, they're neglecting the people that God always warns you about. Don't, don't let their cries go unheard, because they're not unheard by me. Give to the poor is lending to the Lord. Well, not giving to the poor, therefore, must be stealing from the Lord. And that's exactly what you're doing. So verse 24, Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, that's armies, the mighty one of Israel, let's give a crescendo of who is speaking here, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. That's a foreboding rhyme there at the end of that section. But it doesn't end there. The pendulum's swinging pretty quickly back and forth because the next few verses, here's the promise of righteousness being restored. Verse 25, I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross. Oh, it didn't even seem worth it when the, the silver became dross, but there's a little in there. There's a, a righteous remnant that I can coax out if I can just get, a, get rid of all this other dross that's getting in the way. Let me say that again. I will take away all thy tin. Just a lesser metal. I'm looking for precious metal here, and I'm trying to purify it. Will you let me? Go on, I will restore thy judges as at the first. That was a line that caught W.W. Phelps's ear, and so he included it in the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. Thy counselors as at the beginning. Oh, back when they would actually give counsel in righteousness. 
And once those judges and counselors begin ruling righteously again, afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Remember, that's how we were supposed to be when, before you became unfaithful as a, as a prostitute. Next verse, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. I actually love that final parallelism because if judgment is the echo or the rhyme with righteousness, what's the echo of Zion? Her converts. Oh, you who have joined the church later in life, I don't know of a better example of Zion because you've chosen it. I mean, I chose to remain. I chose to gain a testimony, a testimony of my own. But I am grateful for the head start that my parents gave me. But you converts that have chosen to leave Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, what, pick your metaphor for the wicked world, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We've got a whole list growing here. To come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to flee Babylon and come to Zion. You are Zion. You're no, more than anyone, you're going to be building it. It's beautiful. Keep reading, and he's going to give us one more final warning, though. Starting in verse 28. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. We're back to this military, this desolation. We're going to be back in the cucumber field before we know it. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. Are you starting to get used to this parallelism so that you can see the rhymes a little bit more easily? Oaks rhymes with gardens. And that's what you've been choosing? That's what you want? Oh, it's going to turn to your shame. What an embarrassment. Now, what's up with these oaks and gardens? Well, remember, like Elijah and the priests of Baal, it wasn't just priests of Baal, the weather god. It was also priests of Asherah, known as the groves. Ah, the female goddess. And that makes sense. The water falls from the weather to give life and fertility to the earth. And these forests and trees, these gardens grow up. But they're false gardens, dedicated to false gods. This oak is a counterfeit tree of life. It's not the real thing. It, just trust me, taste its fruit. It's not sweet above all that is sweet. Okay, it's nasty, sour aftertaste. In fact, you usually don't even have to wait till it's after. It just tastes bad. Uh, and these gardens, that's a false garden of Eden. These are counterfeits all the way through. And that, that garden, it's not going to bring you back into the presence of God. Oh, no. In the Lord's case, cherubim and the flaming sword was meant to keep you out so you wouldn't come home prematurely, having not repented and not grown up and not changed. In Satan's garden, there's a cherubim and a flaming sword too, but it's to keep you in. That's why so much sin is addictive and there's no escape. So beware of this. But then he shifts and holds on to an element from just before. He sticks with this, this tree metaphor. And he says in verse 30 and 31, for ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth. And then let's go back to the garden metaphor. And as a garden that hath no water. Are you picturing all this withering, this dying, no growth? Because that does seem to be a pretty good picture of Israel, spiritually speaking. The strong shall be as tow. And what that means is like kindling, really fine fiber, uh, something that catches fire really easily. 
And if the strong are the toe, then the maker of it, the people that decide what's, what strength is and, and defines the winners uh, in society, they are as a spark. Hmm. Now what happens when toe and spark come together? Well, sure enough, they shall both burn together and none shall quench them. This is a fatal combination. The strong, whether that's politically, militarily, economically, socially, there's so many ways to define strength in our day. And who's the one that's defining them? The people that are making them strong? Oh, that's the people. That's, oh, how many likes do you get? And, and how popular are you on social media? And, and who are they crowning king for today? Since it shifts so fast and frequently. Well, it's going to go up in, in smoke. It's going to go up in flame. And as those people start to turn on one another, oh, there's the tinderbox. It's, it's burning, and it's not the Spirit of God like a fire that's burning. Not anymore. This is the iniquity of men. And sure enough, if there is no living water to quench it, then no wonder it, it goes up in flame so quickly. Sound like what's about to happen in the northern kingdom? And the southern kingdom was so close if they didn't listen to the Lord. Well, good thing they had Isaiah to try to <laughs> steer them in a better direction. And what direction did he steer them to first? Go to chapter 2. And the focal point, we already read some of it, is the temple. He's the, the prophet in Judah, after all, in Jerusalem, where the house of the Lord is where these sacrifices are taking place. Do you understand what they're for? Who commanded them? Why you are engaged in this? Well, let's go back to the temple and, and do it right this time. So chapter 2, verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, just like we saw at the beginning of chapter 1. He's in the south. Micah is down there in the south with him. Amos and Hosea are up in the northern kingdom to, uh, preaching up there. But here's Isaiah's message, verse 2 and 3. And we've read it before, but just let it sink in now that you see these rhymes. It shall come to pass in the last days. So our day, which day, which time period and the layer cake is he prophesying, or is he speaking of? It's ours. We live in it. So this is key number five. This should make sense to us. In the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Oh, it shall be exalted above the hills. Isn't that what we refer to temples? They're usually in places of higher elevation, usually geographically, always spiritually. That's why we have to up our game. We have to elevate our worthiness and readiness to come into the house of God. The mountain is where heaven meets earth. The mountain is what brings us up and out of, of a lower level of living. Now, it's, it takes work to get there. That's a great metaphor. And so come to the mountain of the Lord. But notice what he says next. All nations shall flow unto it. Wait a minute. Flow? What flows? Rivers do. And what direction do they flow? Downhill. But what did we just see? This is the mountain of the Lord. It's the house of God. And yet people are flowing uphill to get there? Wow. There must be a pull strong enough to counteract the pull of gravity. And the natural man, that's, that's our spiritual gravitational pull. 
it just brings us to a lower level. We can just kind of plop down and not have to flex any muscles. We talk about going with the flow. And sadly, that's usually a descent in the wrong direction. And yet God's pull. Have you ever driven past the temple and just wanted to be there to go inside? Stop whatever you're doing and just turn in and spend time in the house of the Lord. It's something beautiful to see even people not of our faith that are just drawn to it, wishing they could go inside. Keep reading. Many people shall go and say, come ye, let us go up. Notice they're not, you're not just sending people, you're bringing them. I want to come and I want you to come with me. So let's us go and go up to the mountain of the Lord. And now I'll make it crystal clear what I've been talking about this whole chapter to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. And there's no greater house of learning than the house of God. Once we understand what he's trying to teach, then yes, we will walk in his paths. There's the two-way covenant relationship. He does the teaching, we do the walking. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The two centers that we are to, to build temples in. Old Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. It coincides, well, it's not coincidence, so not a bad word. Uh, it, it's east and west. It's old world and new world. It's stick of Judah and stick of Ephraim. It's Bible and Book of Mormon. It's, it's the Lord trying to bring all things together in one in him. Oh, let the flow, these rivers converge at the top of the Lord's mountain. In verse 4, he shall judge among the nations. And he's been passing judgment back in chapter 1. Will we, will we be pronounced innocent or guilty? He shall rebuke many people. That's what chapter 1 was, almost start to finish. There's rebuke in that judgment, but also divine reassurance. They shall beat their swords, military tool, into plowshares, agricultural tool, and then repeat it, and their spears into pruning hooks. I mean, a sword would make a pretty good plow. Sharp, it pierces the soil, right? And a spear would be a great pruning hook. And if the Lord is trying to prune the vineyard, I mean, he's threatened to cut down the whole oak tree, right? The gar withered garden. But in this case, uh, the whole world doesn't need spears anymore. Who would throw that at someone? Well, I don't want this good metal to go to waste. What else could we use? Oh, perfect. There's that branch up top. I never quite been able to reach, but that spear was long enough and sharp enough on top that oh, this is perfect. Oh, and it's such a better purpose to put it to. Well, how, when could you possibly afford to turn military weapons into agricultural implements? When the Prince of Peace reigns. So no wonder he says at the end of that passage, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And I do love that it is learning war. I know that violence and anger and spite and enmity do come naturally to the natural man, but sadly for the most part, war is something learned and something taught, not something that we just were born into the world wanting to practice. Oh, we need to do better than that. So keep reading. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come.
overcome ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. If we're walking together, we must be agreed. And if we're walking in the Lord's light, we can see each other clearly. We can see the path that we're on. We can see that it's the path of righteousness. Yes, it leads uphill, but man, I'm just feeling drawn to head in that direction. So let's go together. Walk side by side, hand in hand, the whole house of Jacob. But unfortunately, it hasn't exactly been a walk in the park through much of Israel's past. That's what he says in verse 6. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. And here's why. Because they be replenished from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They please themselves in the children of strangers. Now that's a threefold rhyme, but they're all trying to teach the same thing. Replenished from the east? Well, what's east of Israel? Well, Assyria is going to come from that direction. Babylon's going to come from that direction. Oh, the enemies of Israel are to the east. Well, the Philistines, that's the west. I'm kind of surrounded by evil influences. No wonder I'm giving in to them. And I can't. In fact, when he says that they please themselves in the children of strangers or being replenished from those that are around, that sounds like relationships. That sounds like marriage outside the covenant, raising children outside the covenant. And this is, it goes against everything God had said in Deuteronomy and other places about making sure you are holding to the covenants that you've made with God and that he's trying to, he wants to keep with you. In verse 7 and 8, here's more problems among the Israelites. Their land also is full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. There's more materialism for you. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. There's conquest and ambition. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. Idolatry, instead of worshiping the true God. I mean, which of the Ten Commandments are they not breaking? And to see this, it's all about self. And how do I get ahead? And what can I spend my silver and gold on? Certainly not to provide for the widows and the fatherless. Oh, no. Verse 9, And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore forgive them not. Now that's actually an odd one, because it sounds like, wait, wait, isn't that a good thing? Great people humbling themselves? Mean people? Uh, not mean in terms of I'm angry and vicious to people, but mean is in terms of common. And they're bowing down. It sounds like they're being humble. Well, but not, not humbled before God, humble before these false idols. I'll do anything that the wicked world wants me to do. That's not the, the boss you should be bowing before. No wonder the Lord is saying not, there's no forgiveness there. There's no repentance. And then in verse 10, let's turn this around. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. When we get to Jeremiah in a month or so, we'll see the Lord sending fishers to fish men and hunters to hunt them. And where will they hunt them? In the mountains and the hills and the holes of the rocks, which we just read. That's where people are going to hide from God, afraid of him. Now, the wrong kind of fear, because they lacked the right kind of fear, which is awe and reverence. And what will come as a result once they're outed in their idolatry? Well, if pride is what is, is pushing them towards these kinds of, of wicked ways, then look at verse 11 and 12 and what's going to happen. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled 
That's why you can tell they weren't really humble when they were bowing down a few verses ago. They were bowing down to the wrong things. But now the lofty looks will be humbled. Let me say it again. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And with all of them down, who's the only one left standing? Well, God, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. He's peerless. He's without equal. So, of course, he's, he alone should be exalted. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. This is part of the role reversal that we've seen in, in all kinds of places so far in Scripture. This is the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And here's some examples of that bringing down to the proper place. Verse 13, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. We're going back to, to tree metaphors. Okay, He seems to like those, and probably because his people would have understood them since they're surrounded by these trees. Cedars of Lebanon, that's what Solomon used to build the temple. That's the best trees there are. Oh yeah, they're the proudest trees in the forest. And yet they'll be brought down. Now there's a, another kind of tree that's really proud too. So here's the rhyme. Upon all the oaks of Bashan. And Bashan was a neighboring territory just like Lebanon was. But if Lebanon was famous for its cedar trees, Bashan was famous for its oak trees. And eh, being famous for anything kind of goes to your head. And so these lofty trees, they are going to be <laughs> brought down. We saw Isaiah's warnings as lumberjack already. Let's shift from trees to, to uh, rock formations then. And upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up. I mean, these are counterfeit mountains of the Lord, so let's bring them down. Upon every high tower and upon every fenced wall. Oh, these are fake places of security, which will give you a false sense of security. Those will come down too. Then he says, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all pleasant pictures. Now, admittedly, that's a weird one. Uh, and if we don't know Tarshish, what's that all about? Well, that would be, I mean, western edge of the known world as far as they are concerned. We would think modern-day Spain. But what's up with ships of Tarshish and pleasant pictures? Well, if, again, use poetry to help you. Did the cedars of Lebanon? Pull a step back. If oaks of Bashan didn't help, because I don't know... We don't read much about oaks in the Old Testament, and we don't know much about Bashan. But cedars of Lebanon, okay, that one sticks. Okay, then he's saying a rhyme, so I, now I get cedars or oaks of Bashan. Then let's just shift the, the metaphor somewhat. And high mountains and hills, okay, that makes sense. High towers, fenced walls, everything. Just these examples of, he's trying to personify pride in every way that he can. President Benson said it's the universal sin. So in some ways you could pick almost any object and find the loftiest version of it, and yeah, that's pride personified. So to think about the ships of Tarshish, oh, that's, that's that way out. That's the edge of the universe, the world as far as we're concerned. They're, they're the, the proudest mariners out there, ready to face the, the edgeless Atlantic. Well, actually, there is an edge. It's the edge of the world. Uh, or the pleasant pictures. Now, what's that all about? It, this is actually something that is fascinating to people because in the Book of Mormon versions of this, it is helpful often to have Isaiah in one hand and 2 Nephi in the other and see where they're different. Uh, people who attack the church say, oh, Joseph Smith was just pulling out Isaiah wholesale. And any, anytime, uh, I think Mark Twain said this, anytime old Joe Smith uh, kind of ran out of creativity, he just put in a big chunk of, of the King James Bible. Well, I can see why they'd say that, but what they don't <laughs> admit 
Well, then explain the differences. I'll explain the similarities if you'll explain the differences. Because some of these differences are profound. And this one is actually somewhat miraculous because according to scholars, you can see this in the footnotes, by the way, this, we saw a double rhyme, ships of Tarshish and pleasant pictures. This one actually was supposed to be a triple rhyme. But the strange thing is that the King James has two out of the possible three, whereas the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament, so the Greek-speaking Jews during New Testament times and so on uh, could have scripture to read, well, they have two of the three also, but they're a different two. So there should have been three things here. And ironically, the Book of Mormon has all three. So how take that, Mark Twain. Uh, was Joseph not only, was he running out of creativity, or did he just know the difference between the King James and the Septuagint and, and think, you know, right here in Isaiah chapter 2 would be a great place to to flex my biblical muscles and bring all of the, you know, merge the two together and bring out all three, which is what the Nephite version has. The way it's described there is upon all the ships of the sea, and then upon all the ships of Tarshish, and then, and upon all the pleasant pictures. And what I sense in that is in some ways this, this crescendo. Let's start talking about the ships of the sea. I mean, the fact that we can go out and explore the, the world. Well, let's go even further than that. Let's go to the ships of Tarshish, because they're already at the edge. I picture ships of the sea being closer to Israel. We're talking Eastern Mediterranean. That's child's play compared to Western Mediterranean. Uh, let's go out to the ships of Tarshish. Well, let's go even beyond that. Let's go pleasant pictures, like oh, where you have to even imagine what's beyond what we've been able to explore. In some ways, there is a bit of hubris, a bit of pride that pushes the envelope. In some ways, we need some of that, to some degree of it, to go explore the unknown. But when it's all pride here, to go from far to farther to farthest, pushing the envelope, and the, the Lord is, is concerned about that level of pride. So he repeats the lesson in verse 17. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Which is exactly what he said back in verse 11. So he, was, he gave the rhyme, and then he waited a while to give the other rhyme, and in the middle is all these metaphors and examples to help illustrate it. He then says in verse 18 and 19, The idols he shall utterly abolish, those ones that they'd been worshipping, they shall go into the holes of the rocks, we said already, and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Some things are worth repeating, just in case you missed it the first time. And Isaiah does that more than most. And here's another repetition of it. Verse 20 and 21. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Think about the animals he chose there. Those that prefer to dwell in darkness... I've been living in darkness, spiritually speaking, but I need to get these out of me. Let me cast them away as I come to the Lord. I'll give them to the moles and to the bats. And they go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Again, that, we'll see that spelled out in Jeremiah 16, 16. Beautiful passage. And then he finishes this chapter, and I love verse 22. Cease ye from man, 
whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? I almost laugh at that verse. After all this talk of pride, you think you're an oak of Bashan? You think you're a, a cedar of Lebanon? You're out in the <laughs> painting pleasant pictures from your far western voyage? Oh, please. Uh, what's that on, on your face? Wait, what, what, this? Yeah, what is that? It's my nose. It's got holes. What, 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 what's it for? It was to bring air in so I can breathe. Okay. Because you got to have air, right? Yeah. Um, how do you keep it in? I mean, because you got holes in your nose. Well, those holes are so I can get air in. Well, yeah, but don't they let it out? Well, yeah. Wait. It's almost like having a balloon that you're not allowed to tie. <laughs> and just the, the opening remains open the whole time. That's why I love this. It's almost like Isaiah is smack-talking anyone who thinks they're, they're bigger than their britches. In fact, speaking of britches, I, my wife and I always laughed when our kids were babies, to the, or I should say toddlers, and still wore diapers. Because when they would get belligerent or a little prideful or just wanted to do their own thing, my wife would always kind of smile and, and wink at me. And we knew, because we we talk behind closed doors and say, uh, he's still wearing diapers. And, and that was always just kind of put, a, put a, somebody in their place. Like, you think you're everything? You're still wearing diapers, little boy or little girl. And in a way, Isaiah is saying that, what? cease ye from man. Why would you put all your eggs in that basket? There's holes in the basket. He can't even hold on to his air. His breath is in his nostrils and it'll fall out at any moment. That's why I love the verb choice of King Benjamin when he talks about us and he says, you know, we're unprofitable servants. Even if you serve God with all that he gives you, because God gives you everything, including lending you breath. And that's his verb choice. I love it. He lends you breath. Because what's a loan? Eh, something you have to give back. <laughs> Don't believe me? Try to hold on to your air, I dare you. Hold it in. You can even plug your nose. <laughs> Got to deal with those nostrils. But what's eventually going to happen if you try to hold on to it pridefully? Well, you'll fall unconscious. And what's the first thing you'll do? Exhale. <laughs> yeah, your nostrils will be open. And it'll come right out. And God can thank you. That was mine to begin with. And he's on his way. Oh, my friends, cease ye from man. And the next time you look at yourself in the mirror and see the holes in your own nose... Realize we don't have as much to brag about as we sometimes do. Humbly ask God for another breath of air. Ask Him to loan it to you. And then return it to Him with gratitude. As you shift to Isaiah chapter 3, there's some powerful metaphor, metaphors here as well. And this chapter is dedicated to the daughters of Zion but it doesn't speak too highly of them. And this doesn't have to be gendered, okay? Uh, he's just picking uh, daughters here because you picture if it's a male audience particularly and how, what they're picturing in their mind of beauty. If, you, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder and most of the beholders are male, then yes, you're going to paint a picture of women. And what is it that makes them seem so attractive? And is that really something that should be appealing to us? So notice in verse 1, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff. Now what's that? Well, keep reading. 
A lot of times we'll stop in our confusion, and if you just keep reading, it'll start to make sense. So he's going to take away the stay and the staff. Now here's the explanation. The whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. So we're kind of going back to chapter 1 of you don't even know who feeds you. And even donkeys know that. And so I guess one way to wake you up is to let you go hungry. <laughs> because if you're taking mom for granted or dad for granted for cooking meals and giving you food, the moment that's taken away, <laughs> yeah, you no longer take it for granted. And that's what's happening here. It's all gone. Verse 2 through 4, the mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the ancient, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor, the cunning artificer, or artificer, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, someone who works with his hands, artwork or metalwork or so on, the eloquent orator. I mean, this is a pride list, just like we saw back in chapter 2. But this time it's people instead of trees or mountains or ships. But there's a pretty good list. It's, you can name almost any area of accomplishment, and there's the best of the best. But what's he say? I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. There's another complete role reversal. The proud will end up being led by the humble, children leading the way. We'll actually see more of that by the time we get to chapter 11. Then in verse 5, the people shall be oppressed every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. There's a complete dissolution of normal social bonds. No deference, no respect, no honor for your elders. Maybe that's part of that role reversal, but this in a bad way. In verse 6 through 8, when a man shall take hold of his brother, of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be our ruler, and let this ruin be under thy hand. When you talk about scraping the bottom of the barrel, what's your qualification? Well, he has clothing. Okay. What does that make the rest of us? Well, completely uncovered. Remember covering, that symbol for atonement? This person actually has some covering. The rest of us don't. Let's follow him. So be our ruler. Get us out from under this ruin. But in that day shall he swear, saying, I, I will not be in healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. I don't know where you heard that I had clothing, but I don't. I'm as uncovered, as, as naked before the consequences of sin as any of the rest of you. So make me not a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of his glory. It's too late to turn things around anyway, so why try? I have no bread of life to give you. I have no clothing, no covering of the atonement to shield us from the consequences of sin. I cannot save us from our own pride and our own self-inflicted destruction. I'm not the, the lamb whose blood can make us from scarlet sin to white as wool. So don't look to me. In verse 9, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. We would say, you have guilt written all over your face. They declare their sin as Sodom, and they hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. What, what an interesting condemnation. Your sins are as Sodom? That's what's written all over your face? 
Remember the problems of Sodom were both sins of commission. That was the immorality that they were famous for. But also sins of omission. That was the neglect of the poor. And both halves of that whole spelled destruction for that city. They were breaking both the first and the second great commandment. Sinning against God, vertical, and sinning against their neighbor, horizontal. And they hide it not. Did you catch that phrase in that verse? They're unashamed. They're not even trying to hide it. This is out in the open. They have normalized what was not meant to be normal. So rewarding evil for themselves? Oh yeah, they are going to reap what they sowed. That's the law of the harvest. But it's not all bad news. Look at verse 10. Say ye to the righteous, there is that little remnant after all that will remain. Say to them that it shall be well with them for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. So the law of the harvest actually bodes well for them. Uh, kind of like when ancient Israel was largely shielded from the plagues of Egypt, it affected the wicked far more than it affected the righteous. And so this righteous remnant will be spared. But unfortunately, like we've said, the flip side is the more common of the two. Verse 11, Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Then 12, As for my people... Children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. Now often, children and women are used as examples of righteousness, but here, in a patriarchal society, as it was in those days, to say that children are, the th are oppressing you and women are ruling over you, now oh, those would be fighting words for the men of Israel as they realize that those we were supposed to lead end up leading us, and we've been following them. We end up turning for direction to the inexperienced and the unauthorized. Well, that's, that's what idolatry is. That's the, the false gardens and, and counterfeit trees of life. In verse 13 and 14, The Lord standeth up to plead. And standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof. For ye have eaten up the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. The Lord is still arguing his case against Israel here. This seems to be a repetition of much of what he said back in chapter 1. You are stealing from the poor? Their spoil? <laughs> Whatever that might be. Is in your own house? I mean, This is the exact opposite of Zion. That's supposed to be one heart and one mind with no poor among them because everyone's dwelling in righteousness. No wonder he calls them a, a harlot when you were supposed to be faithful to God. You've, you've ruined all of this. In verse 15, powerful imagery here, he says, What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts? I mean, what would these Israelites be used to grinding? Well, flour, grain, right? Grind it down so you can provide for yourself. Well, unfortunately, in this metaphor, what's getting mixed in with the grain? Well, the workers who mill it, who are typically poorer than the people that are going to buy and then feast themselves. Uh, we still live in a day of exploitation of workers. And especially among the poorest of the poor, we are beating them to pieces so that we can get ahead. We are grinding their faces. I actually had a friend in high school 
This is a vivid memory for me, and I think of it every time I think of grinding the face of the poor. I was at one of my best friend's houses, and his little brother was hilarious, but loved to pop off and talk smack to anybody around. He was just kind of a fighter and wanted to get into fights any chance that he could. And we had another friend over that day who was as, as built as you could be. This guy was massive. Not the kind of person you'd want to mess with. And yet my friend's little brother was kind of clueless about this, and so he kept on egging on this other friend. And he must have crossed the line because this, this hulking beast of a, of, a, of a buddy gets up and like body slams this little brother down to the ground. He was just like a year or two younger. And kneels on top of him and grabs his head, his face, and starts rubbing it across the carpet. It was, it was carpet burn across his face. Most of this family was redheaded and, some re- and red-faced, and, but I'd, I mean, it was nothing compared to the, the red and purple of this, of this little brother's face when he'd been ground into the ground. And uh, just this older, this, friend, this bigger friend didn't even say a word, just ground his face and then got up and sat back on the couch and, oh, face on fire. That didn't even cure him. And the little brother, it's like, oh, I had you right where I wanted you and you're nothing. And he was asking for it. So sure enough, <laughs> this big friend threw him down again and gave him another face grinding. Uh, probably even things out. Let's do it this side now and, and another carpet burn. Yeah, that's brutal. But to think about doing that to the innocent that didn't egg anyone on. They were just trying to provide for themselves by working, providing for other people but they've been ground down. There is no sense of shared humanity. Again, it's the opposite of Zion. One of the biggest problems you'll see here, and this is probably what was driving their neglect of the poor, was their worldliness, their materialism. I don't want to pay for it. I just want to get as much for me. Again, pride is what we're dealing with here, worldliness. No wonder they're going to be conquered by Babylon, ultimately, since in some ways they already had been. They just want to fit into this wicked world. How can I get ahead? How can I look good? And so notice what they say in verse 16. This is where the imagery really starts to be gendered female. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty. And this is not H-O-T-T-Y, although they'll act in such a way that they sure felt like they were haughty. No, this is H-A-U-G-H-T-Y in terms of pride. Uh, Thinking they're better than everyone else. Okay, lofty. I'll keep reading. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks, other translations say heads held high, and wanton eyes, other translations say flirting eyes, others say seductive eyes, walking and mincing as they go, other translations, prancing steps, strutting along with swaying hips. I mean, can you picture this? They're making a tinkling with their feet. Other translations, jingling their ankle bracelets. I mean, this is a fascinating passage. And it really could use the help of additional translations. Because what he's describing here basically is an ancient Israelite fashion show. Uh, As these worldly women are strutting their way down the catwalk with all eyes on them. And necks held, their heads held high, necks stretched out. and, And I mean, it's... And the, the thing I love about the translations is fads and fashions come and go. And so it's time specific. And what's, what's the fashion in ancient Israel that Isaiah is decrying? 
Uh, what are they wearing in Babylon these days? And what's the style in Assyria? And remember when we left Egypt, we brought all the jewelry out with us? And oh, we can look, walk like an Egyptian, right? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to see. But by the time 1611 rolls around and the King James translators are trying to make sense of this passage, well, what were they wearing in London among the fashionable elite? And then fast forward to the 21st century. And what's the style of the day? Well, whatever it is, it's still haughty. It still looks down on others. It still wants all to look up to it. So keep reading. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. I mean, what you're seeing here is an exposure of ugliness. When you thought only beauty was, was there, you start to realize that that worldly beauty is only skin deep. In fact, it's not even skin deep because there's a scab there. It's nasty. And once I realized that, ah, that is not as beautiful as I thought. I'm not as tempted by it. And so what does the Lord do? He discovers or uncovers, we could say, their secret parts. And in the next passage, he's going to almost turn the daughters of Israel inside out. So you see what they're really like. You remember he does that to, to Samuel for young David? Where he says, to quit looking at the outward appearance. I don't. I look at the heart. And he doesn't look like much on the outside. But turn him inside out and you would see a heart like mine. So he's, he's the anointed one. Well, by now these daughters of Zion are the exact opposite. On the outside, oh, it looks amazing. And they know it. And they want the world to know it. So let's uncover their secret parts. Let's, let's pull off the... The headdress, and you'll see the scab on the crown of their head. It's a fascinating passage, which again use, could use the help of more modern translations. But look at 18 through 23. In that day, the Lord will take away, and other translations make it even more stark, they will snatch away, or they will strip away. I like that one. The bravery, which better translation, the finery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls, and their round tires like the moon, the chains, and the bracelets, and the mufflers, the bonnets, and the ornaments of the legs, and the headbands, and the tablets, and the earrings, the rings, and nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles, and the wimples, and the crisping pins, the glasses, and the fine linen, and the hoods, and the veils. Now, what on earth is all of that? I mean, when he talks about the, the round tires, and the chains, and the mufflers, I'm starting to think of a <laughs> the mechanic shop. And are, are we lifting up the, the car to look under the undercarriage? I mean, is this, is this vehicle falling apart? Well, no. Well, yes, in some ways. But those are all things that to a King James translator, early 17th century audience, they're like, oh, really? The wimples and the, the crisping pins? Oh, dear me. I mean, it, it's whatever they said back in Hebrew, in, Hebrew, in, in, in Isaiah's day. And these, what they're saying in King James Day. And what would they say in ours? In some ways, it's, I love the fact that we're stuck with that uh, 1611 translation because it allows us to fill in the blanks. How would you translate it? Because it was different for me in the 80s than it is for my kids in the, the 2020s. Fashions and fads come and go, but the haughtiness and the pride that drives us to them, the worldliness, the materialism, oh, that's as old as time. 
I mean, as I looked at some of the other translations, here was, here's a, a, a list. Bangles, headbands, crescent necklaces, earrings, bracelets, veils. That's what the mufflers were, veils. Scarves, ankle bracelets, sashes, perfumes, charms or amulets, nose rings, robes, capes, cloaks, purses. That's what crisping pins was. That comes from a really unfamiliar Hebrew word, so I don't even know if King James was, translators were figuring out that one. But mirrors, tiaras, shawls, like I said, it doesn't matter what the specifics are, because we have different specifics in our day. But God will take away the bravery, the finery. That's actually a fun translation, because in some ways, doesn't it make you feel brave when you're well-dressed according to the styles of the day and everyone's looking at you in awe? Like, oh, wow. So stylish, so fashionable. But really, fashions fade. And pride goeth before the fall. So how's this for exposing you? How's this for turning you inside out so that you see that it was just skin deep, surface level, superficiality, and inside there is a hollowness, an emptiness that they were trying to hide. Verse 24, it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there's their perfume, there shall be stink, once you really realize what they, what they smell like, instead of a girdle, a rent. I mean, the girdle kind of holds it all together. No, a rent tears it all apart. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. No wonder the, the scab on the crown of the head is there for all eyes to see. Instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth. And remember, sackcloth showed how devastated you were. Sackcloth and ashes, they're signs of mourning. And the one that sums it all up, burning instead of beauty. Now, I really do think that by the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is, has, still has this metaphor in mind when he reverses it. Remember the famous passage in Isaiah 61 that God will bring beauty from ashes? Well, here is where the, the ashes begin. And they, it, they come from the beauty, at least the exterior kind. And this visible beauty becomes burning and it burns you down to mere ash that will stay that way unless you turn to the Lord. For him to bring real beauty out of it, the kind that isn't just skin deep. By the way, in that passage here where it says burning, scholars suggest that this was a mark of branding, a better translation. And so you are being marked, you're branded, you're burned into the skin. And that's usually what they did to slaves. And sure enough, if we are slaves to the fashions of the world, and I got to get the next thing and the new upgrade and whatever's popular and all this planned obsolescence. So you keep having to spend and spend and spend. And consumerism coupled with commercialism. Oh, the buying and selling of souls. It, does it sound familiar? We're living in the last days and it, it seems like we're, we can see ourselves as in a mirror on the pages of Isaiah. The fashion metaphor then shifts to a military metaphor. In fact, it's not a metaphor. It's a military reality that is looming large. And he says, Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. I mean, couple these two. For the women, here's your fashion show. For you men, here's, the, here's wartime battle. Combine the two, and can you imagine having a fashion show 
not on the catwalk, but through the rubble of desolation and destruction. That does seem to be suggestive of the world that we live in. As things are falling apart left and right, and yet we just want to prance around with tinkling feet. <laughs> Come look at my mantles and wimples and crisping pins. It's a fascinating chapter. Chapter 4, though, follows, and we see a cleansing of Zion. In verse 1, In that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Seven, so often in Scripture, is a symbol of totality, completeness, wholeness, like the seven days of creation. And so seven women, just think all women, everyone out there, if they are all these these haughty daughters of Zion that have now been turned inside out and exposed for what they really are. And talk about reproach. And so all of them, they come and they take hold of one man and say, remember what we saw earlier? Like, will you be our ruler? Because you have clothing. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm as naked. I'm as exposed as you are. But they find someone with clothing. And, and actually, they don't even worry about the clothing. They, they see someone with a name. And a name. I can take that name upon me. I can get married. I can have children. That takes away my reproach. Remember, childlessness and solitude was, were reproaches in ancient Israel. And Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and so others, that was their struggle. I want to be able to have a name to pass down to posterity. Please give me that gift. And so here's these women searching for any man. You don't, have, you don't even have to provide for me. I'll eat my own bread. I'll wear my own clothing I'm not asking for anything from you. You don't have to take care of me. You don't have to provide for me. Just give me a child so I can have some kind of sense. Or give me a husband and give me a child so I have some sense of identity or belonging. It's tragic that in our day to see people basically selling themselves short and selling themselves to get what it is that they want. And I'll do anything you don't have to take care of me. You don't have to provide for me. You don't have to be worthy of me or faithful to me. I just don't want to be alone. And I'll give you whatever you want if I can just be connected to somebody. It's scary to live at such a time when social media should make us more social than ever. And yet it's ripped people apart in some ways. And talk about a lonely crowd. But Israel, ancient or modern, it doesn't have to be that way. If you'll just turn to the Lord, be righteous. Verse 2, in that day shall the branch of the Lord, other translations, capitalized branch, to make this even more obvious, this is a messianic reference. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. You don't have to marry someone that won't even feed or clothe you. You can be married to the, the giver of the bread of life and clothing. <laughs> you can be married to someone who will offer you his robes of righteousness, the garment of praise, the coat of skins, the atonement, which covers our nakedness every time. All we need to do is escape the wicked world. Get off the catwalk and come running to the God of Israel. He will accept you. 
And if we do come, then verse 3, it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, he that remaineth in Jerusalem, and in our day when so many people seem to be leaving Zion or being pulled away from Jerusalem, what's the promise to those of us who remain steadfast? They shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Sounds like the mark of the Lord given in the book of Revelation as compared to the mark of the beast. This is spiritually alive instead of spiritually dead. And in verse 4, when will it happen? When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And yes, this time it is the spirit of God like a fire is burning. It will cleanse and purify. Uh, to understand what the Lord is inviting us to do, I'm trying, this goes back to though your sins be as scarlet, though they be red like crimson. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. There's a way out of this. And Isaiah is almost, it's like he's begging the people, change. Do you understand what's on the horizon? War and destruction, the scattering of Israel, Assyria is marshalling its troops. And so we have to turn to God. He will be our safety. He will be our security. And if you can escape worldly influences and come, you can be made clean. That's what the atonement is for. In verse 5 and 6 then, the chapter ends with such a grand finale. The Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now, what are they supposed to think of with that? Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. This is God leading Israel out of Egypt. I mean, in this case, he's leading them out of Assyrian influence. Out of the, the clutches of the wicked world. But I'm trying to deliver you as I delivered Israel. So follow me and I will bring you to a promised land. And then continuing with that metaphor from Moses, he says in verse 6, There shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. That's one of my favorite descriptions of the temple. Because it's a place of safety. It's a place of security. When the sun is beating down on you, just how... What a difference some shade makes. Just a tent. And that's what the tabernacle was, a tent of testimony. Come there. If it's not sun beating down on you, if it's rain or hail or snow, then please just give me some kind of covert. Some covering. There's atonement word again. If I'm being attacked, give me a place of refuge, a place to shout sanctuary and feel safe. And that's exactly what the temple is. No wonder all nations want to flow unto it, even though it's, it's uphill. And it will require work on their part to become worthy and to become ready of those gifts. The Lord will help you every step. He will purge your, your sins. He will wash away your blood in his own. And so come. Notice, by the way, it's not just upon her assemblies. And to think about temples where the saints have assembled. Joseph Smith said that that's the purpose of the gathering in any age is to build temples, to have a critical mass that you can bring, invite down God into your presence. 
And so, yes, when there was a sufficient mass in Kirtland, let's build a temple. When there's enough in Missouri, let's at least start. When they're gathered to Nauvoo, let's have a temple again. Salt Lake, oh, the ultimate example. But what are, what's happening in our day? Temples are dotting the earth. President Nelson seems bent on breaking every record President Hinckley established. And I say, go for it. <laughs> okay, keep dotting and make places of refuge, safety, security, covert, shadow, you name it. Pillars of fire and clouds of smoke, everyone pointing the way back home. But home is what, is what God is aiming for. Because just catch the first phrase in verse 5. These temples, these tabernacles, these clouds and pillars aren't just upon the assemblies of Israel. They're upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion. Oh, you want to talk about dotting the earth. Imagine if your home was one. That would be a wild one. Can you imagine if President Nelson got up in conference and instead of saying, we're going to build a temple in this city, it's we're going to take the Jones home and turn it into a temple. In fact, we don't even have to. They've already done it. And thank you to the Gonzalez family. And thankful, I'm grateful for these amazing people across the earth Remember in the Bible dictionary where it says in the entry under temple that only the home can compare to the temple in terms of holiness? That's, I see that in this passage. Upon every dwelling place. Look around your home, my friends. Do you see or sense the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire? When your children come in, do they feel safe and secure there? When people of other faiths enter your home, does it feel different to them? Oh, there's shade here from all that worldly heat. There's a covering and, and it's holiness to the Lord. I love. Chapter 4 is a short one, but it is so packed with powerful imagery. It's one re really worth holding on to. In some ways, we've been going back and forth. The pendulum keeps swinging, right? The Isaiah pendulum. Chapter 1 was rough, uh, but chapter 2... Let's flow to the mountain of the Lord. Chapter 3 was rough, turning inside out the daughters of Zion, exposing their worldliness. But chapter 4, temple. And that seems to be the place that he keeps bringing us to, out of the wicked world, into the house of the Lord. Climb the mountain. Then chapter 5, let's shift gears again. And now we're going to see vineyard imagery. And it's going to teach us some powerful lessons about the scattering and gathering of Israel, which is one of the ultimate themes that runs throughout the book of Isaiah. So verse 1 and 2, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. So picture, again, a psalm, a song, poetry, music, just trying to paint a picture of what my beloved is doing out in his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And that's the tragedy. I wanted tame. I wanted good. But I got wild. I got evil. And what more could I have done for my vineyard? This is the Cliff Notes version of the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon, Jacob chapter 5, the allegory of the olive tree. And all these elements are here to set up the vineyard for success. It was a, a very fruitful hill. Oh, a hill, again, up 
high elevation and climb to the Lord, but it's fruitful. He fenced it, so now it's separated, it's set apart, it's protected. He gathers out the stones, so let's get rid of any obstacle to growth. Let's, let's plow and turn. It's like the parable of the sower, but we're going to try to shift everything to good ground. So let's weed this thing. Let's separate it out so other things don't come in. We're going to have animals marching through and, and, and treading down the, 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 the grapes or the vine. We are going to pull out the, the stones and then what? We're going to build a tower. It's going to be watched over. Think about watchmen on the tower, keeping an eye out for the enemy. And notice there's a wine press there, which tells you that this is not some kind of oh, shade garden. This is meant to be a productive vineyard because the wine press is right there. I, I expect a lot out of my people. And by their fruits, you shall know them. So let's bring the wine. In verse 3, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. In other words, whose fault is it? Is this more on me or more on you? Remember Job's big wrestle. It's not me. I haven't done it. So God must have gotten something wrong here. Well, how many Job's are out there that are living practically perfectly? Well, not in Israel. And so judge between us? Oh, they're going to know. So when the Lord then says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And just like Jacob 5, wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Israel, I'm making the case against you. Actually, I'm going to let you make the case against yourself. Compared to my expectations and compared to what I offered you to help you reach them, why are things as they are? Why is Israel such a place of desolation now? That's not me. When I guess that leaves only one other possibility. It's you. So verse 5 and 6. Now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And it's <laughs> due to it, not for it anymore. He's already done everything he could for it. Didn't work. So now he's going to do something to it. And here it is. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up. So no more separation, no more distinction, and no more protection. I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Kind of chilling prophecy there. You won't change? Okay, fine. The day will come where you will be destroyed left desolate. This is prophecy of the scattering of Israel, and it's going to take place within Isaiah's lifetime. He says in verse 7, to make this crystal clear, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant, kind of like his peculiar treasure, Segula. He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but what did he say instead? Behold a cry. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field until there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. That's what the Lord is frustrated about. Now again, like I said, he made it crystal clear. What am I talking about? Like, wait, a vineyard? What? Are you? It's you, okay? I'm looking at you and I, I carved you out of Egyptian soil and brought you to a better place. 
I fenced it. I took out the stones, removed every evil influence, at least tried to. But what happened? There is no good fruit forthcoming. And in fact, instead of producing good grapes, what does he say here? You joined house to house, field to field, placed, so people would be placed along. Every time I read that, I think of, there's a famous picture of San Francisco from a distance. And you see the Golden Gate Bridge or the or downtown skyline. But in the foreground, it's these row houses that San, that San Francisco is famous for. My uh, grandparents lived in San Francisco uh, early on in their lives. And a good, great friend of my grandma still lived there when we would go visit as kids. And yeah, it was those super narrow but pretty tall. And why do you, why do you build like that? It, it, San Francisco is not the only place that does it. Uh, it's, it's common because there's a common problem. It's too many people wanting to, or needing to live in close quarters, close and cramped quarters. And why build it that way? Because you can pack them in like sardines and make more money that way. You don't have to waste it on, on space to, or a yard or anything like that. Joining house to house is so often pushed to maximize profit. And like I said earlier, ironically, we've never lived so close together and never felt so far apart. We've lost something as far as community is concerned. And hopefully in the church, we are preserving that and regaining it somewhat. He then says in verse 9 and 10, In mine ears, said the Lord of hosts, of a truth many houses shall be left desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. Not to make sense of that, you kind of need to know the things of the Jews to borrow Nephi's key. And you look up Bath and, and Ephah and Homer, and again, I'm, I don't, I'm no green thumb, I'm no farmer, but those are horribly unproductive yields. They should have been producing way more than that. Ten acres worth and you ended up with one bath? What's going on? Well, it's just a cottage in the middle of the field. There's cucumbers growing around. There's not many of us left, okay? Uh, there's... Again, the destruction and desolation that Assyria is bringing on, we cannot provide for ourselves. And that's what's going to happen during that period. In verse 11, here's another thing to condemn. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. And the harp and the vial, the tabret, the pipe and wine are in their feasts. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. And we've heard the old saying, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. But that's not what this verse suggests. I'm rising up early to go get drunk, and I'm staying out late to keep the wine flowing. This is early to rise and late to sleep. Addiction holds me in its keep. And that describes our day pretty well also. In verse 13, therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Ah, it didn't have to be that way. Captivity because of lack of knowledge? Interesting. Turn it around. What did Jesus say? I will give you the truth and the truth shall make you free. You can know there's a way out. That's what repentance is. Telling you that there's a way out of your sins. And, other, and if you don't know 
that that's real, that you don't know you can repent, you don't know that life can change, then yes, you are in captivity. And there's not much to eat or drink there. That's why no wonder the honorable men are famished, no wonder the multitude is dried up with thirst. And again, it didn't have to be that way. Because the bread of life and the living water are all around you. In verse 14, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. Oh, she needs to because there's so much for it to swallow. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. And the mean man shall be brought down and the mighty man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. They wouldn't lower themselves in this life except to the idols. Well, they're going to be lowered eventually when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Meanwhile, verse 16, the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. They're brought down. He's brought up as it should be. And God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Once that happens, verse 17 kicks in. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. Oh, there's enough for everyone. We went from no bread or water, and people are hungry and thirsty, to a point that there's the strangers. Let the foreigners come in. There's enough end to spare, so we might as well open the storehouse for them. In verse 18, though, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Footnote there says that they're tied to their sins like beasts to their burdens. And we've already seen beasts of burdens as a metaphor that Isaiah used from the start. But to be connected, to be... Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. So we can pull together and what's, picture what's in the... What's his divine cargo? But here, you're holding on to your sins and you just want to drag them everywhere you go. You're connected to them with cords of vanity. Oh, but those sins make me look good. They make me popular in the eyes of, of the other worldlings out there. Sin like a cart rope, that's, that's a, a strong one. Okay, A very thick rope that binds us to those sins. In verse 19 and 20, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. You see, they're demanding that God prove himself, even though they're not proving themselves at all. But come on, God, let's get the show on the road. Hasten your work. I mean, we see that verse in the, that phrase in the Doctrine and Covenants and elsewhere, but it's God hastening the work in its time. He's choosing to do it. We're not making demands, but ancient Israel is. Oh, come on, you said you'd save us. Do it now. Hurry up. Let's get this show on the road. No, why don't you take the road to repentance yourselves? Instead, what do they do in the next verse? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's easily recognizable rhymes. Think about reversing the polarity of morality. And that's what that verse is describing. You are making good seem evil, and you're making evil seem good. Elder Maxwell used to say that the, the gradual normalization of aberration is the most subtle form of intimidation. And that's a fascinating statement. To normalize aberration to the point that it becomes, it's, it's pressure. 
and you have to conform to that. Otherwise, it's cancel culture. Otherwise, that you you're 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 homophobic because you hold to any kind of standard. You are hateful, bigoted, prejudiced because you won't accept the moral relativism that reigns supreme. That's hard. It's hard to be told you're unloving when that's not, that doesn't describe you at all. As you're trying to prove a contrary between love and law and truth and tolerance, as you're trying to walk a straight and narrow path to honor both the Lord of law and the Lord of love. But no, to reverse the polarity, to all of a sudden switch the, the, the designation of the magnetic sides. And like, nope, nope, north is south now. And south is north. It's just flipped everything. And now every compass swings wildly to the other side. And that's where we're supposed to go. Well, welcome to a pretty good description of the 21st century. Do, are we living in that time? I actually love that verse about the sweet to bitter because I remember in high school, I loved scripture even then. And there was a girl that I knew that made me uh, Rice Krispie treats. I was so thrilled. I thought, well, maybe she likes me. And she made Rice Krispie treats, but it was a total prank because she'd put some kind of like spice or seasoning. I don't even know what it was, but it made those Rice Krispie treats so bitter. I remember biting into them, so excited, ready to taste the sweetness. And it was so bitter in my mouth. Uh, I thought either she's a horrible cook or, or she's trying to get me. And it was the second. Uh, I actually wrote a note and left it in her, in her locker. And it was quoting that passage from Isaiah chapter 5. Oh, woe unto you for me, putting bitter for sweet. I learned even as a high school kid, there is a scripture for everything. Okay, and Isaiah has some of the best. But keep reading. Verse 21. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And yet, isn't that what we mean when we say, you do you? Or whatever you think is right, it's all good. It's not just beauty in the eye of the beholder anymore. Now truth and right and virtue, that's all in the eye of the beholder too. So yeah, you go ahead and be wise in your own eyes. Keep going. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. How oh, you're drunk on iniquity. You can't even see straight anymore. Those which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. At a point when corruption, born of greed, again, is reversing the poles of what's right and wrong. Or how about verse 24? Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Oh yes, ignore God's advice and your hopes will go up in smoke. We've seen all kinds of fire imagery in Isaiah already. In verse 25, therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. I guess that's what's causing all that fire. He hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them and the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this... His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now that last line needs some clarification because it can be taken in one of two different directions. And I think we usually assume it's, it's one when 
it was probably intended as the other. Now, I'm going to actually give honor to both halves, and here's what they are. On the one hand, his hand being stretched out still, it's like when somebody raises an arm, is it to strike you, or is it to, as they're beginning to reach around and, and give you a hug? Uh, you assume one and you get the other. It, again, it, sometimes it's ambiguous and it's hard to tell. What are they raising their hand for? Well, in this case, you have the unrepentant, and the Lord's anger is kindled against them. I mean, even the hills are trembling. They're afraid what, what's going to come, the judgment and justice that's going to come pouring down. Well, the Lord's hand is stretched out still. Here's a warning that the punishment isn't over. Because you haven't repented. How can it be? But then again, the way we usually read it, and it's okay to read it that way too because it's true. God's arms of mercy are ever extended. So despite our wickedness, his hand is stretched out still. Now, if I had to pick which did Isaiah intend in that verse, I would probably suggest it's the hand of justice. But what I know about the Lord is that his hand of mercy is always right there too. And which are we going to get? It's up to us. And we decide when we decide whether or not to repent. So pick your arm. Both of them are stretched out still. This chapter then gets to its close with an amazing passage that I fell in love with as a teacher at the MTC. Because a missionary, a 19-year-old kid, taught me something that blew me away. And when he said that he picked this passage for his missionary plaque, I mean, how many missionary plaques do you know that have Isaiah passages on them? But this was his. And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. Here's God raising his standard for all to see. He will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And that hiss is one of those loud whistles that I can't do. But you know how when they put their fingers in the sides of their mouth and just it's a ear-piercing whistle. That's the hiss of God. It calls attention. I mean, I raised a flag. This I want all eyes here. I'm going to whistle. I'm going to hiss so all ears are on me. And now that I have everyone's attention, behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. Oh, they come rushing when they're called. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. You get a sense of how urgent they are at, at heeding the Lord's call and coming, come running. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. Now, the girdle of their loins, we talk about that phrase, gird up your loins. And what that means in ancient Israel is if you're a man that usually wears a robe all day, I mean, it's tough to, to really run and work in a long robe. I mean, you women know that well, right? You know, it's tough to, to sprint in a, in a long dress. And so what does it mean to gird up your loins? Well, you reach down and grab the back a hem of your robe, and then pull it forward between your legs and tuck it into to your belt. It's by your loins. So you've girded up your loins. And what just happened? You took a robe and turned it into oh, MC Hammer parachute pants. Okay? And yeah, you can run now. No problem. And, but if you keep running and it starts to come undone, it, it pulls out from your, from your waist to your belt, and now you're tripping up over the hem of your robe, or your shoes are latched, the latchet on your shoes, 
that's probably what King Jamesism. Uh, but in ancient Israel, these leather thongs and they're tied on there to keep your shoes, your sandals in place. But if those break, then what happens? Well, you trip up. We would say, oh, your shoelace is untied and you're going to trip. But not these messengers. They saw the standard. They heard the hiss. They never slept. They never uh, slumbered. They never stumbled. They weren't weary. And nothing is going to trip them up from running to the Lord. Next phrase, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Can you picture them? Arms at the ready. I mean, they've already pulled the bow. This is archery, okay? And the, the arrows are sharp. They're going to pierce whatever target they reach. And they've already pulled it back on the bowstring. That's when it says their bows are bent. They're not in the quiver. Well, oh, just tell me whenever you want and I'll pull out an arrow and let it fly. No, it's, I mean, ready, aim, fire. It's already ready. You just say the word and this arrow will fly to its target. Next line, their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Can you picture these horses running so fast that the sparks fly? So it means by hooves like flint. Think of flint and steel and the sparks that are left in, their tra in the trail. Wheels like a whirlwind. Oh, the, these, these messengers are flying. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar. How's that for rhyming? They'll lay hold of the prey and shall carry it away safe and none shall deliver it. I can't believe that a 19-year-old missionary had the wisdom and the sense of urgency to understand this passage, have it resonate deeply in his soul and etch it into his missionary plaque. That's the kind of messenger I want to be. I have no doubt he became that kind. He was an amazing missionary in the MTC. And to see that, that drive, well, I'm not going to slumber or sleep. I'm not going to trip up over a broken shoe latchet. Oh no, when the Lord calls, I will come running. And so he did. That's what God is hoping for from ancient Israel. Oh, I hope he gets it from modern Israel. The chapter then ends in verse 30. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. Oh, we're still a ways away from having that, those kinds of messengers. There is still no light on the horizon. No real repentance to blow away the gathering storm clouds. No, this is darkness and sorrow, gloom, because of the wickedness of ancient Israel. And yet, as we turn the page from chapter 5 to chapter 6, there is yet light to come. The light in Isaiah chapter 6 actually begins to shine on Isaiah himself. It's a fascinating chapter because in some ways it should have come first. But you know those kinds, because he's called in this chapter. He has his visionary experience where God calls him to the work. But kind of like in those epic movies that starts with some amazing battle scene or whatever, and you have no idea what's going on, but man, he, grip, he grabs the attention, right? There's a hiss, right? There's a standard. And I, I'm just caught up in this. And then once it passes, and I, now I'm confused, 
then there's often a flashback that sets the stage that kind of brings up, gets you up to speed to make sense of the battle that it all began with. In a similar way, Isaiah is kind of set up that way where, I mean, the court case is right laying out there in chapter one and then the back and forth between wickedness and righteousness and, and worldliness and temple and wow. And then where does all this come from? Okay, glad you asked. Let's go back to chapter six and see Isaiah called in the first place. Verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Now this is a temple scene. A perfect sight for the calling of a prophet. We saw the temple as the focus of chapter 2. We saw the temple as the focus of chapter 4. And now we're seeing the temple as the focus of chapter 6. The odd, so far the odd chapters are the rough ones. And the even ones are quite a bit better. But this temple scene, in some ways it's similar to Revelation chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, chapter 4. Uh, where John has his vision of the throne room of God, basically. And the way it's described is a temple scene of sorts as well. But here, Isaiah sees the Lord. Scholars have pointed out that the three main writers of the small plates of Nephi in the Book of Mormon are Nephi, Jacob, and Isaiah, whom, they, whom they both Nephi and Jacob quote at length. And the common thread between those three is they all saw the Lord. In fact, that's what Nephi says in 2 Nephi 11, the big pump-up chapter before the big Isaiah chapters begin. That I've seen him, Jacob's seen him, and Isaiah has seen him. There's three witnesses to begin the Book of Mormon, just as there were three witnesses to begin to bear witness of the Book of Mormon when it was first uh, translated. But to understand this calling and the way it's described, in fact, I love his train filled the temple. If you think about a woman, a bride, for example, it has the, this flowing wedding gown and its train is what it's called. Well, think about the hem of God's garment and it is filling the temple. Think about the woman with the issue of blood who braves the multitude and pushes her way close to be able to touch just the hem of Jesus' robe, the train that fills his temple. Think of, again, if the, if the hem of the robe, the train of, of his garment is the farthest edge, then that is the feather at the, at the tip of the wing. Same words used in Hebrew. It's the same word for the, the, the skirt that Boaz turns over or spreads over Ruth. And so to see what's happening here, oh, it's, a, it's a powerful visionary experience that Isaiah is having with the Lord. What else does he see? Verse 2, above it stood the seraphim. Now we've talked about cherubim before, those heavenly beings that were carved in gold upon the Ark of the Covenant. Well, seraphim would have been something similar, we assume, some heavenly being. But seraphim means literally burning ones. We saw the Spirit of God like a fire burning often uh, in the previous chapters. Each one of these seraphim, though, has six wings. With twain, that means with two, he covered his face. I sense humility there. With twain, he covered his feet. I sense worthiness there. And with twain he did fly. I sense there a willingness to go wherever they are sent. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Remember, the smoke is the, from the incense altar. It's the prayers of the saints ascending to heaven. Early on, we saw that God was not listening to the prayers because they weren't being offered for the right why or the right who. But here, oh, the holy, holy, holy God is being honored in, in righteous ways. And there in the temple, the house is filled with that glorious, sweet-smelling smoke. And Isaiah is a part of it. This is similar, by the way, to the visions of John in Revelation, like I said, and the visions of Ezekiel that we'll get to in a month or two. But keep reading. Verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I mean, how can I not be somewhat affected by the sins of my generation? And I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to do anything. And yet... Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I would imagine that such feelings of unworthiness, of inadequacy, are totally normal since we saw it in Moses and in Enoch and in Gideon. And I'm sure you and I have felt similar feelings ourselves. But to see the embodiment of holiness, to the point you have to call him holy three times in a row, oh, to see through the smoke and realize I'm not worthy to be here. A man of unclean lips, as eloquent as those lips were. He didn't feel like he was ready to be in God's presence. And yet, how does God respond? Verse 6 and 7. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. This incense altar, prayer of the saints. Here's a burning coal brought by a burning one, and he laid it upon my mouth. And said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, thy sin purged. Now this is, I mean, for someone who is so eloquent himself, and so oh, drenched in, in symbolic language and metaphors, this symbolic experience that uh, Isaiah is having, oh, you want to talk about imagery? To have a burning coal placed upon your mouth, since that's the part that you said was unclean. This is for every sense. Can you, can, you, can you hear the sizzle as it's placed against those moist lips? Can you smell the burning? Can you feel what that, how much that would hurt? And yet the pain was purifying for Isaiah to realize that God had come to cover his nakedness, that the blood of the lamb would change scarlet sin to white, white wool, that the holiness of the Lord could be granted him, but that he would have to be purified as if by fire. In verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Sound familiar? Then said I, here am I, send me. Does that sound familiar as well? That great scene in Isaiah, excuse me, in Abraham chapter 3, when the father is present, presenting the plan and asks the question, not what shall we do? He knew what they should do, but rather, whom shall I send? Who is 
worthy to, to perform this saving mission. And the Lord responded, here am I, send me. As Elder Maxwell used to say, never has so much been offered for so many in so few words. And yet to see Isaiah here as a type and shadow of Jesus, being asked the same question and responding in the same way, there's a willingness to follow the Lord and to serve him. Verse 9 then, the Lord says, go and tell this people. And what he wants Isaiah to tell them is really hard to understand, so bear with me. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Other translations say calloused. Either way, it's hard-hearted. Make their ears heavy. There's dull of hearing. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Now, what makes this passage so confusing is it makes it seem like God is commanding that that be the case. Isaiah, go out and make the heart of the people fat and hard so they don't feel anything from the Spirit. Make them blind so they won't see and make them deaf because we don't want them to hear how they could repent and avoid the consequences of their sins, right? And it's like, what? What are you saying, God? It's similar in a sad way to the way people read Exodus when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let the people go. But Joseph Smith corrects that in the JST and says, no, 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 it wasn't God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He didn't need to. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, didn't need any help to do that. Is something similar happening here? Uh, does it need a JST to correct that? Well, the irony is the whole thing is in the imperative. It's these commands. Go out and make their heart fat and their ears heavy. But even the first part, hear ye indeed, but don't understand. See ye indeed. I used to read that and go, oh, maybe that's what he's getting at. It's like, hey, you guys see. Or excuse me, you have eyes, but you choose to be blind. You hear, but you don't understand the thing. But know that it's in the imperative. Go hear, but don't understand. Go see, but don't perceive. Now, is this a mistranslation? Uh, is, it some, is it reverse psychology? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, oh, yeah, go out and do this. Like, oh, I don't want to do that. Well, good. I don't want you to do it either. Or is this, in some ways, uh, an accusation? Where he's saying to, because at the beginning it says, go and tell this people. So is Isaiah going forth to the people and saying, guess how you live your lives? You go out as if you were under orders to keep people from coming unto God. You're creating obstacles instead of building bridges. You don't want people to repent and change. And so you're making this happen. There's no solution here other than repentance. This could be a, a way of saying to Isaiah, this, this is what the result of your, of your cries to repentance will be. You'll end up hardening their hearts even more. And it's not your fault, and it's certainly not mine, but the wicked take the truth to be hard. It cuts them to the center, and so they will harden themselves against it. But we have a job to do. We will cry repentance to give them a chance to soften their heart even if they choose to harden it instead. To me, whichever way that is, okay, we need to read it in the light of the doctrine we do understand. What amazes me is the body parts that are chosen about seeing and hearing and feeling 
and the inability to do so because the same exact body parts appear in Doctrine and Covenants 1. The preface to this dispensation's book of Scripture, uh, newly revealed. And what does the Lord say? This is in Doctrine and Covenants 1 verse 2, right at the beginning. For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape. And there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. I don't care how fat and calloused it became. God will reach down into it and touch the heart and try to write upon its fleshy tables. I don't care how dull the ear or blind the eye. I will reach it in these last days. Because I'll have missionaries oh, whose hooves are making the sparks fly. I will have an ensign. I will have mountains of the Lord rising from the earth. Everywhere you can look on every dwelling place of the righteous, and people will be changed by that. I love that the restoration is meant to reverse the apostasy. And Doctrine and Covenants 1 builds off Isaiah 6 in terms of, oh, there's no escaping. The restoration will come forth. You better believe it. And one other thing that I just want to add before moving on to the next verse, the, the last uh, rhyme we're seeing similar things to the heart and the eyes and the, and the ears. But then at the very end, because, I mean, heaven forbid that they see or hear or understand and convert and be healed. Remember earlier we saw the rhyme was Zion and converts? Well, here the rhyme is conversion and healing. And if you're feeling broken, if you have some of the putrefying sores we read about at the beginning of Isaiah, then have the mighty change of heart. Come unto your great physician and be converted to him and by him, and you will be healed in the process. Which then begs Isaiah's question, as he realizes what he's up against, but what the hope might be. He says in verse 11, Then said I, Lord, how long? How long will this iniquity and willful ignorance go long? How long will it, will it take to change them and heal them and convert them? And God answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. We keep seeing these images that point to the scattering of Israel. That's what's going to happen in Isaiah's day. And so here it is prophesied yet again. Nothing short of a complete scattering of those northern tribes will wake them up to the consequences of their sin and the need to change and come unto God. Nothing short of that will make a difference. Uh, no wonder there needs to be a cucumber field uh, and trees cut down. In verse 13, but yet, here's the good news, in it shall be a tenth just a little tithe of the, of the former population. And it shall return. Here's this remnant that shall return. And shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Now the end of that is confusing. The New International Version makes it a little more sense. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And again, if we're dealing with tree metaphors, which Isaiah seems to love, then, in fact, good reason, the Assyrians often, when they would attack, they would 
deforest as much as possible. They would cut down trees left and right. Partly that way they could use the lumber to make their siege engines and fight the, these walled cities. And partly also was to totally disrupt and disrupt and destroy the agricultural base. Uh, without trees, without orchards, what, what are you going to eat? Okay, So it was a win-win for Assyria because it was a lose-lose for Israel. And so lots of cutting down metaphors here. And the way that this chapter, chapter 6, ends is cutting down the tree. But and that's the bad news. But the good news? New growth can emerge even from a stump. New shoots can arise and spring forth if they have access to living water. I'll give it time. Don't lose hope. Yes, there will be a scattering of Israel, but what else will there be? A glorious gathering as well. If, that is, oh, the Messiah comes to make it all happen. And that's what we see in chapter 7. A need for and a promise of a deliverer, a savior. In verse 1, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now, remember when we were looking at Nephi's keys back in 2 Nephi 25? And if you can get these five, master these five things, then Isaiah will make sense to you. Well, the one that talked about uh, the history of the Jews, this is the one we need here. Because we have this whole cast of characters as this chapter unfolds. And Isaiah is there. King Ahaz is there, who's the king of Judah. Then you've got King Rezin, who's the king of Syria, and King Pekah, who's the king of Israel. Okay? Don't worry, there's not a quiz on this at the end. But here's the way it works. At this time period, Israel and Judah, uh, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, had been enemies ever since Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam split, right? Days after Solomon. And... What ends up happening, they're frequently fighting one another, but then there's these surrounding areas and, and, and nations. You've got Edom and Moab and, and Gilead and Bashan. You have uh, the Philistines. You have Syria. And then Assyria and eventually Babylon after that. But when it, what's happening here, Assyria is on the rise, and everybody knows it, and everybody's scared about it. And so Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, Syria, a smaller kingdom that's further west, and Israel, they've often been fighting each other, but they actually form a, a, a league with each other because they thought, hey, uh, it's all hands on deck if we, help, if we hope to stand a chance against the Assyrians. So let's make a, a, an agreement, uh, political, military, and, and we'll bind together in hopes that you know, two can fend off one. Well, actually, if two can fend, are, are better than one, three is better than two. So we should get Judah on our side. So these two, the kings up north, Syria and Israel, come send messengers down to the king of the south and say to the king of Judah, come join us. And it's our only chance to stand against the Assyrians. But the king of Judah isn't sure how he feels about that. Uh, well, if Assyria is the one that's going to beat you too, I'd rather be on the winning side. And so I think I'd rather join Assyria rather than join you to fight against them. Hmm. Well, that's not very wise either, and it's going to spell disaster in the southern kingdom uh, in, in that time period. This whole period is called the Syro-Ephraimite War, if you want to get technical. Syro from Syria, Ephraimite as in Israel. Ephraim was the main tribe in the north. And the Syrians and the Ephraimites now are fighting, wanting to fight against, well, wanting to make a league with Judah. And since that doesn't work, they end up fighting Judah instead. And so King Ahaz is like, okay, uh, now they're against me because I wouldn't be with them. And 
what am I going to do? Well, it's in that, I've set the scene, notice what happens next. Verse 2, and it was told the house of David, in other words, the king of Judah, that's the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. They've formed an alliance against you. And his heart was moved, the heart of the king of Judah, Ahaz. And the heart of his people, they're scared too. As the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Uh, just today I was driving through uh, Provo and American Fork Canyon. And to see the quaking aspens, those are some of my favorite trees. And they called them quaking because the leaves, in the wind, as the wind blows, they, it looks like they quake. And what's interesting about it is one side of the leaf is a little darker shade of green than the other. And so as the wind blows through and they're, it's just almost this shimmering effect or this quaking effect. And what do we say when somebody's really scared, so scared that they're quaking in their boots? Well, that's what Isaiah is, described, is, using, is saying to describe King Ahaz. He's freaked out. The whole, the whole kingdom of Judah is freaking out. They're quaking like a tree when the wind blows. Come on, what are you afraid of? The house of Israel? The, the, the king of Syria? Oh, if, if God's on our side, then no worries, no matter who the enemy might be. Well, verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sheir Yashub thy son at the end of the conduit of the upper field in the highway of the fuller's field. Now the location here is key. It's at the end of the conduit of the upper pool out in the fuller's field. Now this is going to be famous in Hezekiah's day because Hezekiah is famous for Hezekiah's tunnel. And remember that uh, was the, his, his concern was if, if an enemy comes, and Assyria is right outside, if they come and lay siege to Jerusalem, we're, we're dead because we have no water source inside the walls. So let's dig a tunnel underneath the walls to connect the Gihon Spring down to this pool of Siloam so that the water can then flow in our direction. Uh, and we're safe in here. I mean, they, they can thirst us out much faster than they can starve us out, right? Well, that was wise of him. Well, this is before Hezekiah's day, and King Ahaz had similar concerns. He didn't think of a tunnel, but did think of a conduit. And it sounds like he's out there checking on the city's defenses, its water source. That's very precarious at the time. And how would we do against the Syrians or the, the Israelites or the Assyrians, heaven forbid? Oh, what do we do? I'm, I'm worried. Here is a king concerned for his kingdom. And what, what can I possibly do? Isaiah comes and brings his son, Sheir Yashub. And it's important that you know who that is because Sheir Yashub means a remnant shall return. It, it would have been tough to be a prophet's kid back in the Old Testament because you got named interesting things. They usually were symbolic because I've got a message for you. Here's my son, visual aid. Okay, so uh, son, would you mind being my object lesson? Uh, and so come, Sheir Yashub, it's important that we reassure the, the king that no matter what happens, as far as the scattering of Israel is concerned, a remnant shall return. I'm so sure of it, I named my son that. Okay? Pleased to meet you. In verse 4, say unto him, this is the Lord's command to Isaiah, take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it. 
and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Now that's a really confusing passage if we don't understand our history. But what the Lord is saying for Isaiah to say is, King Ahaz, don't worry about these enemies. They're more smoke than fire. That's when he says the, the tales of these two of these smoking firebrands. It's like a sparkler on the 4th of July. Uh, I mean, yeah, bright, but it's going to burn out quick and it just leaves some smoke in the air and then it's done. These guys are going to fizzle out quickly. So no worries here. Don't, don't fear them. All they're trying to do is, is to play upon that emotion of fear so they can come down, attack you. You're in a place of weakness and so you'll be defeated and then they can replace you on the throne with some puppet king that they can pull the strings and control. They can't control you because you're standing up to them. You're not going to join them in this this ill-fated alliance. Don't fall prey to this fear. Just trust in me. That's what he says in verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. All these things you're worried about, it's not going to happen. For the head of Syria is Damascus, that's the capital, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, that's the king. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim, the northern kingdom, be broken that it be not a people. So those northern tribes will cease to exist as a nation. The scattering of Israel will be taking place. And then another parallel, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. So the capital of the northern kingdom is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. That's the king. And then this amazing statement, if ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. There's actually a great play on words in the original Hebrew. One phrase is ta'aminu, and the other phrase is te'amenu. They're just so similar. And a rough translation is, if you do not stand firm in faith, then you will not stand at all. And to understand the importance of trusting God, standing firm, it's the only way you're going to survive this. It's not trusting in the arm of flesh. It's trusting in the arm of God. So hold on to that. By the way, that the Hebrew word aminu and amenu is where we get the word amen, which means to stand firm. It makes me want to say amen a little more firmly when I agree with something that's being preached or at the end of a testimony that I'm bearing to other listeners. In verse 10, then he says to the king, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, don't believe me? Fine, let me prove it to you. Ask for the proof. I'll give it. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, it's interesting that God would offer the sign and then the king would refuse it. Because Ahaz wasn't exactly the, the stellar spiritual ruler that we would want him to be. That Hezekiah was, for example. In some ways, though, you see in Ahaz, oh, you don't want a sign? Well, that's actually good. But not believing me without one, that's not good. In some ways, I just, I need you to believe so that you can be established. Uh, I mean, even with Gideon, he, I, I gave him some additional reassurance. I'll even do the same for you, Ahaz. I just need you to believe. And so, interesting that this moment mixes strength with weakness. And no, 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 I, I, I'm not going to ask for a sign. 
but I need one because I don't, I'm scared to death. I'm scared of the, of the Assyrians. I'm scared of the Syrians and the Ephraimites and everything seems to be bearing down on me. Here I am by the, my water source that I don't know if it's going to get us any water. Once the siege begins, what am I supposed to do? So Isaiah says to him, Hear ye now, O house of David. You, you king, personifies it. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? I mean, it's bad enough that you are an exasperating leader of men. But it's even more frustrating that you are not a righteous follower of God. You've got to change, and so do your people. And even though you didn't ask for one, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. In verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And here it is. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, our footnote says that's food for the poor, but other scholars suggest it's choice food, but hard to come by if you're stuck in a city under siege. I mean, the cows are outside the walls, and the, the honeycomb is too, so what are we going to eat in here? But Isaiah goes on with this sign, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. That's what I'm trying to reassure you about. I just said that give it time and the northern kingdom will be scattered. They're no enemy. And give it time and Syria will fall apart too. So there's no, in fact, not even that much time will be needed. As soon as this virgin conceives and brings forth a child, just give it a few years. And as the child begins to grow, oh, by the time it can eat, it's weaned, it's approaching a time where they can be a little bit more independent, a little more self-sufficient. They can eat a little bit more. By then, there will be no enemies to your north to worry about. So it's a short period of time. Just trust in me in the meantime. Now, that's if we are keeping everything in Isaiah's day. Remember the layer cake. And the same prophecy can apply to his day and or to Christ's day and or to our day. Well, this one definitely applies to the Lord's day as well. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this one's uh, controversial. Because the original Hebrew word here can, it simply means a young woman. Now, granted, in that time period where chastity was uh, strictly enforced, the, uh, if you're a young woman, then, of course, it would be assumed that you are a virgin. So some would say, well, it still means that. Others look to the, the Septuagint, again, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it uses a Greek term that's more easily translated as virgin. And so some wonder... Oh, is that where the, the mistake, so-called, comes in? Well, by the time you get to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, oh, he holds to that virgin shall conceive, rather than, oh, a young woman is, is going to be married and have a child. And See, the, the power of it is both can be right. Because in Isaiah's day, most interpret this as it was probably Isaiah's own wife is going to have a child. Again, Isaiah has children as visual aids. Here's Sheer Yashub, a remnant shall return. Well, let's have another child. And by the time this child is old enough oh, to have butter and honey, we'll be safe. In fact, we'll be back. If we're righteous, that is, we'll be surrounded by our promised land flowing with milk and honey as it's always supposed to. 
and we can eat all of that in peace. We'll be fine again. So in Isaiah's day, a non-miraculous fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, miraculous in that it was prophesied and then took place, okay? But a regular birth from a, a regular marriage. Whereas in Mary's experience and Joseph and the baby Jesus, this is a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a child whose name truly or whose identity truly is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is the Son of God, only begotten in the flesh. And he will save us, not only from Israel and Syria or Assyria, but from sin and death, which are far more dangerous foes. That's how Matthew puts it in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then for anybody who doesn't speak the language, he clarifies, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew, whose audience was primarily Jews. He was a Jew writing to Jews. Luke was more concerned about a Gentile audience. Each gospel has its own purpose. But in Matthew's uh, focus, Oh, these Jews will know their Isaiah chapter 7. I want them to. And if they know it well enough, they will see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. In verse 17, he then says, The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. In essence, he's telling King Ahaz, yeah, Syria and Israel aren't your real enemies anyway. That's child's play compared to the Assyrian Empire that will soon be bearing down on you. Those will be days like you've never seen since the original split between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, between Judah and Ephraim. Oh, brace yourself for that. Sure enough, the rest of this chapter then prophesies of the destruction and desolation that Assyria will leave in its wake. Israel will be scattered, leaving a sparsely populated countryside behind. That's what he says in verse 18 through 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. We saw some hissing before, but that was to get God's messengers up and running. Now it's calling for God's enemies from the east the bee of Assyria will come ready to, to sting. And from the west, the fly of Egypt will come. This is, there was war brewing at the time between Assyria and Egypt, by the way. Uh, in some ways, Assyria had bigger fish to fry than Ephraim or Judah, Israel or Judah, or the Syrians for that matter. But they said they're on the way. We might as well conquer them on our, on our trip. But it's really Egypt that we're after. This is a new and rising world superpower wanting to... Oh, completely a defeat, the old superpower in Egypt. But the prophecy goes on. They shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. Remember, in those days, having a full head of hair, you think Absalom, you think uh, Samson, was a sign of 
authority and power, prestige. Go up thou bald head, remember, with Elisha. Well, for the Assyrians to come and, oh, humble you. You want to talk about cut down the cedars of Lebanon, cut down the oaks of Bashan, lower the mountains, bring you to your knees. Well, let's shave. <laughs> let's make you look like a baby all over again, fresh out of the womb. We'll shave your head, we'll shave your feet, we'll shave your beard, we'll shave it all. We will shave away the glory of Israel. That's a serious plan. And that's what you need to be preparing for. In verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. I mean, that's what you do after the city centers have been completely destroyed. The land starts to go back to pasture. And so you got your cow and your sheep at least. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. It shall even be for briars and thorns. Now, on the one hand, it sounds pretty good, right? Hey, butter and honey. But th that's just for the ones that are left in the land. And it doesn't seem like there will be that many left. I mean, Sheir Yashub, it's not a multitude. It's just a remnant, Right? Uh, to the point that these thousand vines end up thousand silverlings instead. And that's, what's that all about? Well, look at the rhyme. It's just briars and thorns. It's almost like the Garden of Eden is reverting back to east of Eden in a world of, of thorns and thistles and weeds. We've got problems here. And that's what this uncultivated, untamed state of wildness will bring. In some ways, that's a great metaphor for what Israel's become. Chapter that ends in verse 24 and 5, with arrows and with bows shall men come thither. That's the Assyrian army on its way. Because all the land shall become briars and thorns, and on all hills that shall be digged with a mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. We're just going to start over, shall we? As farmers in some areas, as herdsmen in others, there go the cities of Israel, and desolation will reign in its wake. Chapter 8 then continues on this same theme of impending destruction. And King, if you won't take my advice and trust in God, in Emmanuel's promised coming, Again, that's your day in a bigger picture. If we don't trust in the coming of Christ, if we don't know that God has come down to be among us and will save us from sin, then are we afraid of the destruction of our own spirituality, our hopes and, and, and dreams for life? Well, look what happens next. And we meet another son. And if you thought Sheer Yashub was a rough name, this one's even harder. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashabaz. How's that for a name? And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jerobekiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, is this the child of promise that was mentioned or prophesied in the previous chapter? Perhaps. If Emmanuel is more of a title than an actual name, or if he's trying to make it obvious, I'm, I'm looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment. But yeah, we'll have a, a more proximate fulfillment too. And so Isaiah and the prophetess she is referred to here, his wife, they have a child. 
and he's brought some faithful witnesses. So it's, I mean, this is set in stone and I want people to know that I'm naming this child something on purpose because Maharshalal Hashbaz means to speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. It's this sense of imminent destruction. <laughs> Every once in a while when my kids were little and they'd do something naughty, I'd say, oh, Maharshalal Hashbaz. And they'd be like, kind of laugh because like, what is dad speaking gibberish for? And I'd say, oh, speed to the spoil. Hasten to the prey. Destruction is on its way for your behavior. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I just laugh and, and try to teach them a little bit of Isaiah. Okay? But talk about a visual aid and talk about a powerful name that if you're not careful, then you will be the spoil and the enemy is hastening on its way to come get it. Because, verse 4, Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus, that's Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's Israel, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Just like I told you in the previous chapter. Oh, just if you could hold out for that, trust me, it'll happen just as prophesied. Then verse 5 through 7, The Lord spake also unto me, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, that go softly, and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son, those two enemies, now therefore behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks." Now remember where's Ahaz in all of this? He was up by the water channel when they first started talking about this. Obviously some time has passed, enough to have a child, right? A child of a symbolic name. But you're so worried about the water source, Ahaz. Well, you should be more concerned about the source of living water and how you can tap into that. So let's make this, let's dramatize this with some, some water metaphors. And on the one hand, you have an opportunity to receive this gentle flowing water that will bring life and salvation to you and to your people. That's the waters of Shaloa that go softly. Unfortunately, Ahaz, you've refused them. And if you won't take the soft living water, then you will take the hard river of death that's going to flow in and overflow its banks and flood you with eminent destruction. Right, Maharshalal Hashbaz? Do you understand this? Assyria becomes the, or the, the river here is Assyria. And it is going to come flooding over everything in its way. And because you refused one river, you'll get the river that you didn't want. Give, said the little stream. Oh yeah. The gentle one was trying to give you the blessings of God all the way. Assyria is no little stream that's offering to give. It is a raging river that doesn't say give, oh, give, give, oh, give. No, it's take, oh, take until there's nothing left behind. And Israel will be scattered by it. In verse 8, he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. O Emmanuel, this land where God wants to come. It's his promised land. It's his promised people. It's his house here in Jerusalem. But is he, is he invited? Does he feel welcome? No, 
that living water has been refused. So of course these destructive elements will come rushing in. So what's my message to you, King Ahaz? What's the Lord's message to you? Trust in Him. Him whose train fills the temple. His wings are outstretched. He wants to cover you with the skirt of His robe. If you'll just come unto Him, don't trust in the arm of flesh. There's no flesh on it. And so verse 9 and 10, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Let me say it again. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For God is with us. There's Emmanuel all over again. Who will you make alliances with? Well, covenants, if we're talking spiritual. Covenants with God or alliances with man. Whose arm will you place your trust in? Because if you want to join together with other mere mortals, then you will be broken apart by your enemies. You see all these plays on words? Again, such a gifted writer and speaker Isaiah was. So eloquent. He was the Elder Maxwell of his day. So, don't go with worldly alliances. Come unto a God who wants to be with us instead. The warning is then repeated in verse 11 and 12. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Because that's all that's motivating them. Scared to death of what might come their way. And so they fear their enemies in the scaredy-cat kind of fear instead of fearing God in the reverence and respect kind of fear. They're choosing the wrong way. In verse 13 through 15, he then says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. It's a rough list there at the end. The wicked will fall. They'll stumble. I mean, their robes will come out of the belt. The shoe latchets will break. They will stumble, be broken, snared, taken. Because they refused deliverance when it was offered them that it became a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Remember we saw that about the stone that was rejected will become the head of the corner? Well, this is part of the rejection side of things. It's not till long, long in the future that they'll have a chance to build upon it again. So what do they do in the meantime? Verse 16 and 17. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Now that could mean, oh, pack it up, time to go. We're about to get scattered or destroyed anyway. Or it might mean, go renew your commitment to God. Bind up that testimony. Seal up that law. Seal it in your heart. Swear to it. Reconfirm your commitment. Either way, what's Isaiah's plan? I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. I'm going to turn to God, not to the foreign nations. I hope you'll follow suit. Verse 18, Behold, I... Isaiah, and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. 
I told you it was tough to be a prophet's kid. <laughs> you became the visual aids and the object lessons. I could say the same about being a teacher's kid, since yes, I, you probably know a lot about my children more than they wish that you did. Oh well. But these children, Sheer Yashu, Mahershalal, Hashbaz, uh, even the symbolic name of Emmanuel, uh, it's amazing what God is trying to show Israel, or Judah, I should say, through Isaiah. Verse 19 and 20 then, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. In other words, they're encouraging that you go to false messengers rather than true ones. Here's your response. Should not a people seek unto their God, for the living to the dead? Well then, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Why would the living seek help from the dead, he's saying, that can do nothing for you? Turn to the living God instead of these dead idols. They're, they're powerless. Wizards that peep and mutter. How about prophets that see and reveal? I'll take that any day. Turn to the living God and put your trust in him. Verse 21 and 2, then they shall pass through it, hardly bestead, distressed or weary is what that means, and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. Well, at least they're finally looking up for something, but they just cursed God. I don't know what they're going to find up there then. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. So I guess looking up or down is kind of pointless since you've uh, abandoned God from any direction. I don't know where the help will come from since you've refused the help that can come from God. Well, in this chapter that ends on a note of darkness then, then shift gears and see in chapter 9, oh, the promise of light. Again, we're seeing Isaiah's pendulum swing back and forth. So chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness, so he's picking right up where the last chapter ended, shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Uh, Nephi told us to study your, your Israelite geography. This is a good place to do it. Zebulun and Naphtali were tribes that settled in the far north of Israel, close to the Sea of Galilee, in fact. Uh, important stomping grounds once Emmanuel comes among, among them. But that dimness... You see, if you're in the north and it's the Fertile Crescent, so enemies from the east, like Assyria, like Babylon, like Persia, aren't going to come straight over because they'll die in the Arabian Peninsula. Instead, they'll come up and around. That's why the Crescent is, well, that's why the Fertile Crescent is a crescent. As they come up and around then, unfortunately, that means the northern end of Israel gets the brunt of the attack before it, they go through the rest of, of the nation. That's why Israel is usually attacked before Judah is, if they're coming from that direction. Well, I'm sorry about your dimness, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, earlier he talked about dimness of anguish, but also darkness. And darkness sounds worse than dimness. And sure enough, that's what he's getting at. That, that, that was just a light affliction. The kinds of things you've been through up till now can't hold a candle, and you need candles in this dimness, to what you're going to face when Assyria comes in all of its power and scatters the northern tribes hither and yon. It's, there's nothing left. It's a cucumber field, folks. Okay? It's briars and thorns. You're going to revert back to a, a couple of sheep and a, and a cow. Okay? So 
be, be aware of this, but also be aware of a promise of better days ahead if you'll be faithful for them. Verse 2 and 3, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, are you starting to hear the 23rd Psalm again? Upon them hath the light shined. Oh, thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Now that makes no sense. You've multiplied this great news, but hey, no joy here. The second Nephi version on the, from the brass plates is missing the word not. And that actually makes the parallelism much more clear. They multiply, thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. Okay, that's better. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Well, you want to talk about a good day. We just won the war. We got, we're bringing the spoils of war home with us. We have gone from hunger to harvest, and it's time to feast as a family. We've gone from dimness and, in fact, straight-up darkness to a light that has shined enough to cast away the shadow of death. We found life and light and hope through the light and life of the world. This is a beautiful, beautiful prophecy, and it's a messianic one. He's going to come. It gets quoted, by the way, uh, in the Gospels as they're looking for the coming of Christ. They're up there in Galilee, where Zebulun and Naphtali used to hang out. And the light would come among them to shine. The Messiah will come to give you feast instead of famine, to give you joy instead of sorrow, to give you restoration instead of apostasy. When all is said and done, to give you light instead of darkness. That's what the Messiah will do. Verse 4 and 5, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Now the day of Midian, if we remember our Israelite history, is when the Midianites were coming like, with camels like, like locusts, innumerable. And Gideon in the book of Judges is scared to death. Until the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and with a miracle and breaking some pots and blowing a trumpet and holding a torch and hoping this works, and it does. Oh, there's some light shining in darkness and the enemy fleeing. That's how it's going to happen again. The yoke, the staff, the rod, all of that, those are symbols of, the, the, of Assyria coming and bearing down on you. But don't worry, it's going to come like the days of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. I mean, that's how war usually takes place, right? But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. This is going to be a different kind of conquest. Forget the confused noise. Forget the bloody garments. Well, remember one. When Christ descends in robes of reminding red. When the earth is cleansed by burning and fuel of fire. It will come through the coming of the Messiah. That's when the light will shine through darkness. And with that promise of the Messiah's coming, <laughs> he did it once with the Midianites. He did it once with the Egyptians. He's done it so many times. And he will come and do it again. And with that, cue Handel. And Handel's Messiah. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Is there a better song in Handel's Messiah than that? Is there a more glorious anthem to raise and to raise our hopes with it? That, that list of titles? Oh, he's just a child, just a son. Oh, but children grow. And this Prince of Peace will become the King of Kings. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. By the way, to make the parallels really fit, and other translations do a better job of this than King James's translators did, take out the, the comma between wonderful and counselor. I mean, you can kind of hear the comma in, in Handel's version. Uh, there's a, a break there. But it's, he's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. And yes, he's the wonderful counselor. The kind of counsel the Lord gives you. It points out the best possible way to live. That counsel is wonderful. We should follow it. Verse 7, the praise continues. Of the increase of his government, it's there on his shoulder, he's bearing it up righteously. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. I mean, that's what the promise for the Davidic dynasty was supposed to be. Well, it kind of falls apart. Uh, with the mere mortals on the throne. But when the Messiah comes, there is a, there's the throne of David. And it will last eternally. The no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The angel Gabriel actually must have known his Isaiah chapter 9 because he seems to quote or paraphrase it when he appears to Mary and promise her that Emmanuel is on his way, that she will have a son and name him Jesus. And then he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, Isaiah said so. I believe him. Verse 8 then, the Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel, and all the people shall know. Oh, did we see similar words in Exodus? We will see similar words again in Ezekiel. The world needs to know this. Even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, those two enemies that are bearing down on you, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, oh, the bricks are falling down. Fine. We will build with hewn stones. Let me rhyme that. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Now, there's a stubborn determination if I've ever seen one. <laughs> I mean, stubbornness that's staring the consequences of sin in the face and saying, I'm not, I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to change my ways. No, in fact, I'm going to double down on them, even if it leads to my own destruction. You see, I built with bricks the first time and you tore that down. I guess you didn't like the, the Tower of Babel I was building. I'll build with hewn stones next time. Let's see what you do against that. Sycamore trees, not good enough for you? You cut them down? Fine, I'll come back with cedars. Yikes. Uh, talk about no humility, no willingness to change, despite all that you faced as you've been scattered and destroyed. In verse 11, Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin, that's Syria, against him, and join his enemies together. 
the Syrians before, that's the east of Israel, and the Philistines behind, that's the west of Israel, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth, getting gobbled up from both directions. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. That's why that phrase in that passage makes it all more obvious. He's, this is an arm of justice and judgment. But again, it could be an arm of mercy. He'll change his if you change yours. If you change your ways, that is. If you change your attitude. And if you'll repent. But Israel, the, the worry here, or the prophecy, I should say, is that they will be crushed between enemies on all sides. And even with all of that, the people will not turn back to God. There's that stubbornness again. In verse 14, therefore, as a result, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he's the head. And the prophet that teacheth lies, he's the tail. And that makes me wonder, is the dog wagging the tail or is the tail wagging the dog? I don't know. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. You know, all the more reason that you need righteous kings. Now Ahaz, step up. Hezekiah will. And all the more reason that you need righteous prophets. Because if your, people, your leaders are leading you astray, then you need righteous leaders to lead you in the right direction. In verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. That's, that's shocking. Because those are the groups that he tends to protect. But not now. Why? For everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, in bad ways as well as good ways. Wow, hypocrisy, folly evil doing, among, even among the fatherless and widows, who do they think they're, they are going to help them? They're driving away the only source of assistance they've ever had. Then he says in verse 18, for wickedness burneth as the fire. We're back to that imagery that Isaiah seems to love so much. It shall devour the briars and thorns. That's all that was left after the desolation that was prophesied back in chapter 7, right? It's amazing. Isaiah seems to have a long memory. And he keeps weaving these threads together throughout his narrative. It shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened. No wonder they'll need the light. And the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. That's a scary ending. Fire needs air and needs fuel. And what's, what's the fuel by then? The people? No man sparing his brother? This is an every man for himself kind of world. This is a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of a world. This is, I'm going to get mine and I've got to get ahead. And that's scary. But it does describe our world pretty well. Verse 20 and 21, he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall eat on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. Now, this is really where the dog-eat-dog -dog world comes in, right? But you're never getting enough. You're snatching from one another left and right. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. That's what you've been trusting in all along. And talk about a meager meal. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. Those are the principal tribes up north in Israel. They together shall be against Judah, the kingdom in the south. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 
A war of brother against brother. House of Israel divided against each other. Will it ever change? To think back to those brothers in Egypt and Joseph against the other ten. Benjamin wasn't part of the problem. Eventually they did reconcile. And that is the hope that we are holding out for. It's not going to happen in Isaiah's day, though. Instead, what will happen? Well, everything he's prophesying. The destruction that is imminent, Maharshal al-Hashbaz. The scattering of Israel until only a remnant remains, Sheir Yashu. The kicking out of God, even though he wants to be with us, Emmanuel. And so what does he describe in chapter 10? It's really interesting because he's been describing the destruction of Syria and Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. Here he kind of shifts gears and talks about the destruction of Assyria itself. And you think, well, how's that possible? They're the big, the big bully on the, on the street. And, and that, this alliance won't, won't be able to defend itself against them. There's no hope. There's no hope in overcoming Assyria. Well, do you hear people say similar things in our day? There's no hope in overcoming the wicked world. Of course there is, through God. Well, what's interesting about Isaiah 10, as it prophesies the destruction of Israel, really what it's doing is, again, layer cake. This is going to happen in Isaiah's day or shortly thereafter. But fast forward, it's what's going to happen in the last days, where the wicked world will be destroyed, consumed as if by fire and... Therefore, if we look back at the destruction of Assyria, it's our preview of coming attractions. Or in this case, the preview of coming destructions. And so let's learn from the past as we prepare for the future. Verse 1 and 2. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. Okay, so it was just a, a passing verse that God didn't seem to be aware of the needs of the widows and fatherless. Oh no, he's always aware of their needs. He just hopes that they'll turn to him. But these people, these wicked leaders, have turned aside justice in order to fill their pockets uh, or to guarantee their re-election. Whatever it might be, they are preying upon the most vulnerable members of society. And that seems to suggest a systemic, a structural wickedness that is incredibly hard to overcome. In verse 3 and 4, What will ye do in the day of visitation, and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help? And where will ye leave your glory? Other translations say, Where will your treasures be safe? I mean, you can think about the slippery riches at the end of the Book of Mormon. Or think about your children, since that's your real treasure. Are they becoming slippery too? Where will you lay them up in store? What That treasure of yours. Well, without me, the Lord says, they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. But that's the key. Without me, they'll bow down under the prisoners. Without me, the only hand that's out there stretched out is justice or consequence for sin and no one to protect you. But if you turn to him and let God with you be with you, Emmanuel, then all will be well. 
He then says something interesting about Assyria that, again, is being used to destroy the, the wicked Israelites and scatter the, the northern tribes. Verse 5 and 6, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey. How's that for Maharshalal Hashbaz? And spoil and prey are in his name. To tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now what he's saying there is, I know you're afraid of the rod and the staff of the Assyrians, but guess who's really wielding it? I am. Thus the first person pronouns. I will send them. Okay, I'm going to give him a charge. In other words, I know that, Israel, that Assyria is a wicked nation, but I can even use impure instruments to do my work. Sometimes I have to. It's by the wicked that the wicked are destroyed. We see that in the Book of Mormon. And so what's happening here? God is going to use the Assyrians to punish Israel for her sins. But don't think that it's the Assyrians doing it. In fact, you Assyrians shouldn't think that you're doing it either. This is me. So don't get all haughty uh, thinking that you're the world's superpower just because I happened to let you be my instrument of correction. You see, the problem is if you think it's all about Assyria, then you're going to turn to Assyria for help. And unfortunately, Ahaz does just that. But if you realize that it's God behind it all, then who will you turn to for help? To God. And that's been Isaiah's hope all along. Now, verse 7 through 9. Howbeit he meaneth not so, the Assyrians that is, neither doth his heart think so. The king there in Assyria doesn't see God's hand in it. He doesn't want to admit that I'm just a tool in God's hand. No, it's me. I'm conquering the world. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, are not my princes altogether kings? I mean, my little boys, my sons, they're stronger than all the rulers of the other nations. Is not Kalno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? We don't know all those places unless we really know our geography, but those are names of cities the Assyrians have already conquered. And what, what did he list near the end there? Samaria is going to be just like Damascus. On my way over, I've conquered Damascus. There went the Assyrians. Now I'm going to conquer, next I'm going to conquer Samaria. That's the Israelite capital. You're next on my list, so prepare yourself. Verse 10, as my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, this is still the king of Assyria talking, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and unto her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? This is just like the smack talk of Rabshakeh that we saw back in 2 Kings, where remember when he comes and he makes sure he does it in Hebrew so he can scare to death all the, the guards on the wall? And the, the king's messengers are saying, uh, could you, we speak your language. You want to speak uh, your language too so that it only scares us instead of scaring the troops? And Rabshak is like, yeah, whatever. I know exactly what I'm doing. And what is he saying? It's been dominoes falling all the way down. And there's not a single god of any single kingdom that's able to set it back up again. What do you, what, you think the god of Israel is any different? In fact, he can't be because we conquered... Israel up north, so the God of Israel fell before us. And don't, don't you guys worship the same God as the ones, the folks up north? That's where King Hezekiah can say, well, actually, we worship him correctly. 
and we're going to trust in him now. Isaiah has been giving me some good words of wisdom. He tried to do it with Ahaz. Ahaz just wouldn't listen. And so the same kind of idea, and here you have the king of Assyria saying what Rabshakeh would say a little bit later. There's not a God in any other country that's been able to stand up against us. Verse 12, Wherefore it shall come to pass, that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. The Lord's the one that's going to do it. It's his work. You thought it was you conquering the world. You took all the credit to yourself. This is pride, putting pride in its place, but pride remaining among the prideful. That's a lot of pride I just talked about. But to understand what God's going to do with pride everywhere, he's going to bring it down. He used the wicked to bring down the wicked, but if the wicked are still taking credit to themselves, well, then they have to get brought down too. And that's what's going to happen with the destruction of the Assyrians. But the Assyrian king doesn't think that. No, no. In verse 13, he saith, By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures. And I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Talk about a fight over first-person pronouns. God is, no, I am the one doing this. And the king of Assyria, no way. It's all me. It's all my power, my wisdom. I'm the one doing it. And sure enough, no one can stand up against me. Even the way he describes it at the end. They don't move the wing. They don't even peep. Notice what he just did. He's describing Israel as a scared little chick. Well, that's exactly what they are. And what was the Lord whose arms of mercy are also stretched out still? How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Don't be a scared little chick. Come, and I will protect you. Verse 15, the Lord then fires back at the king of Assyria. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? He says the same idea twice. There's some more Isaiah rhyming. But what's he saying to the king of Assyria? You are object, not agent here. You are being acted upon more than acting, and I'm the one pulling the strings. I'm simply letting the wicked destroy the wicked, but don't take the credit to yourself. Because can you imagine? I guess in our day, yeah, we could have a fully automated axe or saw, and it does all the work, and I guess it deserves all the credit, although someone else designed and built it, right? But in those days especially... Remember, it's more tree symbolism and cutting things down, which is what the Assyrians were famous for. Well, uh, how does it feel to be chopped, king of Assyria? Because it's going to happen to you. You will be brought to your knees. And when you're down there, maybe you'll have the wisdom to look up and see that someone was holding you, axe. Someone was wielding you, saw. And you weren't doing all this work on your own. He then says in verse 16, Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. Under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. 
And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. How the end of that long metaphor, no one to rally the troops, no one to show that the enemy has not yet defeated them. That's how it will be for you. In fact, as we go through mowing down the forest, look at verse 19 and 20. The rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. I mean, even a little kid can count that high. That's how few and far between the, the remaining trees of the forest are. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, there's share Yashu perks up, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Finally, people that actually choose to trust in their friend, capital F, rather than their enemy? Remember King Ahaz. No, I'm scared. I don't want to join Syria and, and Israel against the Assyrians. I'd rather join the Assyrians. And he does that and ends up getting destroyed by the Assyrians at parts. He has to pay tribute to them uh, just to try to you know, pay off the bully to be able to survive. This whole time it could have been different. And here's that promise. There will be some who make that difference. This remnant shall remain, and it will be a righteous remnant. In verse 21 to 22, the remnant shall return. I named my child after that. Even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. We saw that earlier river flooding over its banks. Well, now it's a river of righteousness. And it will bring people flowing uphill back to the mountain of the Lord. In verse 23, For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined. This is already planned in advance. Okay, count on it. In the midst of all the land, therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. I mean, you guys have already had experiences with bullies like this. Egypt was that way. And for centuries you were languished in bondage. But I got you out. I sent my deliverer, a little mini Messiah. I'll send the full Messiah later on. If you will trust in me and come unto me, just hold on, it won't be long. Replace your, your fear with faith and believe in me. Verse 26 and 7, The Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian, the rock of Oreb. There's that allusion again back to the days of Gideon when God stepped in and performed the miracle. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. So it'll be like the defeat of the Egyptians in Moses' day as well. I've got given you all kinds of evidences from the past to prove myself. It shall come to pass in that day, this day of deliverance, that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. It's the best phrase in that whole verse. Because of the anointing, there will be no more burdens, no more yokes. Why? Because they've been broken off. Well, how? Just anointing oil. That gives you, lubricates things that you can finally slip your neck out of those chains. And remember the anointing. That's Messiah in Hebrew. That's Christ in Greek. 
these messianic prophecies. Where's Waldo? He's everywhere. He's right there. Just believe in him. Verse 28, back to the Assyrian onslaught. He has come to Ayath. He has passed to Migron. At Michmash, he hath laid up his carriages. They are gone over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. How lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard unto Laish, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Gebim gather themselves to flee. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now that was the ultimate geography lesson. <laughs> A list of cities that we don't know much about. But Isaiah's audience did. Because what he's just listed is all these places, these cities that will fall like dominoes to the Assyrian Empire. And where does he end? The Mount of the Daughter of Zion, Rimet, the Hill of Jerusalem. We're talking the city of God and the house of God. Isaiah is writing there, or prophesying there in Jerusalem, right? Prophet to the southern kingdom. The north, it's probably too late for them. Good luck, uh, Hosea and Amos up there. But as I'm preaching here in the south, there's still hope for us. Yes, it's getting closer and closer and closer. I mean, in some ways, if, you know, if, you, if you're from Utah, for example, and know your Utah geography, imagine Salt Lake City being headquarters and the center and the Salt Lake Temple there as the mountain of the Lord. And if I were to rephrase this, and let's, let's call Assyria, who's Assyria in our day? Should we go with Las Vegas? Sorry, I know there's amazing saints in Vegas, but it's a good, I mean, Sin City, that's a good metaphor. Uh, it's an evil metaphor, right? Um, it, but let's say Las Vegas is on the move. And it's going to come bearing down on Salt Lake City. But if I'm describing this domino effect and trying to ramp up the anticipation and this building momentum, that is, there all, is there any hope for us? Picture that Las Vegas has already conquered St. George and then Cedar City and then Beaver, and then Fillmore, and then Nephi, and Spanish Fork, and uh, keep going, and, and Provo has fallen, and Orem, and Linden, and, and Pleasant Grove. It's, he's taken on Lehi, and Draper, and Sandy, and Midvale, and... Now, those names might not mean anything to you, but if I listed some area that you're familiar with, and especially if you live in Salt Lake, where next? And what will we do? It's like Assyrians are crossing every name off the list. But there remains one final fortress. And that's the house of God in Jerusalem. Will it stand? Depends on us. In verse 33 and 34, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror. And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. There's more tree imagery. But this time it's the Assyrian tree that gets chopped down. They're used to chopping down everyone else. Well, your, your time will come. And sure enough, it's amazing how each fish gets gobbled up by a bigger fish behind it. And what's next on the horizon? Babylon. Yeah, you might have heard of them. But in the midst of this conversation about trees being chopped down. Can I turn from the bad news to the good news? Because growth can still emerge from a stump. We saw that in a previous chapter. 
But chapter 11, that becomes the central metaphor. And this is one of the great chapters in Isaiah, though it can be kind of confusing. This is important for us to understand, though, because it, uh, it was one of the chapters that the angel Moroni quoted to a very young and, I would assume, sleepy 17-year-old in Joseph Smith. As he's quoting Malachi and Acts 3, he quotes Isaiah 11 and actually says to Joseph, yeah, this one's about to be fulfilled. Just FYI. Okay, Isaiah's layer cake. Yeah, last days, it's go time. So that would perk up Joseph Smith's ears, I'm sure. He, in fact, in, in Doctrine and Covenants 113, when Joseph has some questions to ask the Lord about Isaiah, guess which chapter he's wondering about? Chapter 11. It's been weighing on him ever since he was 17. But let's read it together. Verse 1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, we got to stop here and really unpack this one. What makes it hardest is the fact that the King James translators use the word stem there, when a more accurate term would be stump. Because for us, stems suggest growth. But what's being described there is the stump of Jesse. He's playing on the image that he just ended chapter 10 with. Okay, that Assyria is going to get cut, chopped down, timber, and there it is, this stump that remains in the field. Well, unfortunately, the house of Jesse, the house of David, is going to end up being a stump as well. Something's going to happen to Israel, scattering the, 12, the ten tribes. Something's going to happen in Judah, that's the captivity to the Babylonians. And so while we're thinking of stumps, and that's that sadness and sorrow to just to look at what used to be a mighty tree with David and with Solomon. Now is a stump in the ground, but the good news is a rod. That's really where a stem would be. That's some kind of shoot will begin to grow out of that stump of Jesse at some point. Now, if we stopped right there, we would assume, well, what's the stump of Jesse? Well, it's the Davidic dynasty that kind of comes to a, a halt as far as spirituality is concerned, uh, as far as politics are concerned with the Babylonian destruction. So who's going to grow out of that? Well, Jesus will. In fact, later, by the time we get to Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies that he, the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. How's that for a new rod growing out of the stump of Jesse? You see the same thing said in the next line as a poetic parallelism, a synonymous parallelism. A branch, and it's capitalized to make it obvious, that we saw branch earlier, and that referred to the Messiah then, and it does again here. A branch shall grow out of his roots. So if we are sticking with straightforward synonymous parallelism, which we're most used to, then that's a pretty straightforward one. Don't worry, house of Judah. Uh, Things are looking pretty bleak right now, but the day will come where new growth emerges, and it will come through the Messiah. That's all well and good. Uh, In some ways, though, what complicates this is uh, it's not as straightforward as... Well, I'll put it this way. That is accurate. It's true. Okay. But that doesn't exhaust the possibilities for that beautiful verse. And in fact, it's, this is where it's kind of mind blowing. If you know your symbol, your, your synonymous parallelism, then leave it at that. Okay. Things, things will turn out fine. But I love that God can oh, add another wrinkle 
and get more mileage out of any word that he gives. And so with the word that he gave to Joseph Smith when he's wondering about this, this is Doctrine and Covenants 113, verse 1 and 2. He asks, who is the stem of Jesse? Spoken of in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth verses of the 11th chapter of Isaiah. And the answer, verily thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. Now, wait a minute. Are we too beholden to King James translators? Saying that this is a stem and that sounds good because it's growing out of Jesse. And yes, Jesus will grow out of Jesse. Well, then stick with the rod or stick with the branch. Branch is the easiest one of all. Capitalize it all. But here's what's amazing about this. If we take the Lord at his word there and go, no, no, that represents Jesus too. Then wait a minute. I thought the rod growing out of it was Jesus. How does Jesus grow out of Jesus? Well, actually, that's a great question. Uh, It's called the resurrection. That you can take the crucified Christ and just wait. And in a matter of days, he will rise with healing in his wings. You thought you cut him down, Satan? (laughs) No, you bruised his heel. That's it. And in the process, he crushed your head. And he will rise again. He will grow out of that stem. And so he does. But there's more than that. We're going to come back to this idea of Christ as the stem slash stump of Jesse. Uh, But notice what Joseph asks next. Verse 3 and 4 of Doctrine and Covenants 113. Okay, fine. Then what is the rod spoken of in the first verse of the 11th chapter of Isaiah that should come of the stem of Jesse? Again, if we're going with our earliest assumption, oh, that rod would be Jesus then, right? He's the one that grows out of this stump of the the broken Davidic dynasty. But no, verse 4, God's answer, Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. And we read that and see Joseph Smith there. So, okay, that really reverses things. The rod is Joseph Smith, and it grows out of the stem of Jesse, and that's Jesus. Oh, actually, that does kind of make sense. Joseph Smith and his whole ministry emerges out of Christianity. It emerges because of the calling that came from Christ. But then keep reading. This is really where it gets amazing. Verse 5 and 6 of section 113. What is the root of Jesse? Spoken of in the 10th verse of the 11th chapter. And we'll get there in a moment. And the answer, behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a descendant of Jesse as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood in the keys of the kingdom, for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days. And since that sounds so similar to the rod that was described earlier, then we believe that the root also is referring to Joseph Smith as well. Okay, so are you thoroughly confused? Let's see if we can map this out a little bit. By the way, he doesn't even ask about the branch, because that's just too obvious. Everyone knows that's Jesus, so we're good. But now we have the identities, according to DNC 113, for these four elements. And here's it, here it is, as simple as I can make it. The stem slash stump you got to picture this. you got a stump in the ground. It's dead, but there's going to be new growth that comes out of it. He's going to say it twice in his poetic rhymes uh, and, and just new growth out of something dead. But the stem, which is the stump, which is the dead part, that's Jesus. And the rod that grows out of that stump is Joseph Smith. But then in the second half of the parallelism, the other rhyme, the branch is Jesus and the root is of Jesse in that verse is Joseph Smith. 
So what? Let's reread it now with fill in the blanks. Okay. Isaiah 11 verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod named Joseph Smith out of the stem of Jesse, who is Jesus Christ. And a branch, that's Jesus Christ, shall grow out of his roots, and that's Joseph Smith. You see, it reverses the parallelism. Now, in a normal parallelism, or in fact, we can even go at syllogism. This is to that, as this is to that, because it establishes relationships, and they're supposed to parallel. It would be rod is to stem as branch is to roots, because the first part of the pair grows out of the second part of the pair. That makes sense. It, it, it follows perfectly. It's those two. But then we, when we reinsert the names based on section 113, which is, again, such a fascinating wrinkle, then what you're saying is Joseph Smith is to Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is to Joseph Smith. And you're going, what? That reversed things. And like I said, the Joseph growing out of Jesus, that's easy. Jesus called him in the sacred grove. Everything Joseph produced was because God revealed it to him. Then how on earth is Jesus supposed to grow out of Joseph? Oh, actually, when you think about it, what was the purpose of the restoration for? People who were drawing near to the Lord with their lips, but their hearts were far from them. The purpose of the restoration is to restore our relationship to Christ. It's to restore God's people into that covenant relationship. It's meant to prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So does Jesus grow out of the work that Joseph Smith has laid out? Yes. And I am so grateful to be a small part of the work that Joseph gave for all of us to do. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? I hope so. I'm working toward that. Because I do have faith that new growth can come, even from old stumps. I saw that on my mission. Somehow the, the earth was so fertile, or the humidity gave so much water that you, it could be a, a branch that was cut off a tree, and they'd stick it in the ground and tie uh, barbed wire around it to make a fence, but give it enough time, and there would be new growth coming out of a stick that they stuck in the ground. I, I have hope in that. That's the, the allegory of the olive tree. And sure enough, olive trees are famous for sending out new shoots, even out of the roots. Is anything ever really dead? Not if the Lord can touch it. No, I hope that made at least some sense. It's a really tricky passage. But if we go back to what the Lord said really clearly at the beginning of DNC 113, all those verses, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and so on, yeah, that's Jesus. In that case, well, let's keep reading. Okay, 2 through 5, we know this refers to Christ, so let's read them. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And what does that Spirit consist of? There's a list of six. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those all describe the Savior beautifully. And what will that Spirit do for him? Verse 3 and 4. It shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor 
and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And remember, the rod, if it's iron, that is, is the word of God. And with the breath of his lips, and remember breath means spirit in Hebrew, shall he slay the wicked. And then verse 5, And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. That's what he ties up his robes with. <laughs> to secure the robes of righteousness, he binds them with righteousness and faithfulness. That way he can always run to our rescue and never worry about tripping up. I am grateful for that description of the Messiah. And I testify that that describes Jesus perfectly. He doesn't look at your outside. He doesn't judge you based on what he's heard, the rumors about your reputation. In fact, he even understands you better than you do. And to be able to reprove with equity, to breathe into you the breath of life, to rule you with an iron rod, to just point you in the direction through the mist of darkness so that ultimately you can come to that tree of life and fall at his feet in gratitude. Oh yes, he's running. This is a second coming chapter. No wonder Moroni quoted to Joseph Smith. It's about to be fulfilled. Uh-huh. And we're getting closer and closer to that fulfillment. Verse 6 through 8, now we see the millennial reign. I mean, if Christ is here, then the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, it's happening. And this famous depiction, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. Well, that's a, lots of long poem with lots of rhymes. He's trying to be as emphatic as he possibly can. And rhyme after rhyme, metaphor after metaphor, these animals that shouldn't be able to coexist peacefully, they do. Because the Prince of Peace is here. We talk about the lion and the lamb lying down together. I actually love what G.K. Chesterton said, that too often we just assume that means the lion will become lamb-like. But that's a horrible usurpation on the part of the lamb. That's just the lamb eating the lion instead of the lion devouring the lamb. But what if, what if they could coexist and both hold on to their defining attributes? What if the lamb could enjoy all of its gentle meekness and live right alongside the lion who maintains all of his regal ferocity? That is Jesus, actually, since he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the lamb of God. I'm grateful for times that Jesus is willing to roar down sin and death. I need that. But I'm also grateful for the times when this good shepherd becomes the lamb of God and lets me approach him mercifully. There's something beautiful about this passage with all of these examples, and to me, one of the greatest Details? Think about the animals, and you can think, oh yeah, that one would eat up that, and that one would never get along with this, and oh, that's just a danger. I would never let my child go play with a cockatrice, at a cockatrice den, venomous serpents. And yet, don't just look at the nature of the animals, look at the age of the animal. That's a detail I think we often overlook. But he says the wolf will dwell with the lamb, not the sheep. 
He says the leopard will lie down with the kid, not the goat. It's the calf, not the cow, and the young lion hanging out together. It's a little child leading them. Young ones dwelling together. You have a sucking child and a weaned child. This whole passage is young. And to me it suggests what will usher in the millennial reign of peace? Little ones. Or maybe big ones who have chosen to be little in their own sight. Men and women who have chosen to become like little children, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's parents teaching their children to love instead of hate. How oh, to, to see the, a rising generation, can you picture it, that's ready to enter the promised land? And to do so by being able to live peacefully with all those who live around them. I wonder also this idea of the child and the, the asp and the cockatrice. This is a child. We could call that the seed of the woman. And these are venomous serpents. So there's a snake. Don't, don't we remember reading somewhere, somewhere back there, that the, seed, the snake and the seed of the woman would be at enmity one with another? Well, if that's the result of the fall, then this is the result of the second coming and the millennial reign. A reversal of the fall where snakes are no longer our enemies and our little children find no danger there. It's beautiful. Verse 9, equally beautiful. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <laughs> the end of that is so ironic because I'm like, wait, wait, Isaiah, like the waters cover the sea. What do you mean waters cover the sea? The sea is water all the way down. And I picture Isaiah with a little twinkle in his eyes. I, I hope you think that. I hope you realize that. This is not some kind of surface level spirituality. No, in the millennium, it goes all the way down. And it's the knowledge of the Lord with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. It's people who have come to know him because they live as he did this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's what he's after. And at that day, no wonder we won't hurt or destroy. Where? In all his holy mountain. And this is all coming together. This is temple focused too, like so much of the rest of Isaiah. In his holy mountain, oh, the knowledge of the Lord. I know him. And it's making all the difference. And if I can see him in me and see him in others, then what would stop a lion and lamb from lying down together? Ah, the whole earth becomes a temple, a place where differences dissolve as we all dress in robes of righteousness that leave no distinguishing differences between us. Move on to verse 10. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Now, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, this is Joseph Smith we're talking about. And he shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Is Joseph an ensign? Well, the gospel that he restored is. Uh, it's just an ensign, though, I'll say that. Flags are typically not the destination. They just mark 
the destination that people are trying to arrive at. And that's definitely true of the Church of Jesus Christ that Joseph restored. We're just a flag, but I hope we're pointing the way. In verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. Sheer Yashub, this remnant shall return. This remnant which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. I don't know where any of those places are. <laughs> Do we have to? No, because God knows. He knows where he has led his people. He knows where Israel has been scattered. And he will send messengers to come and gather them, no matter what island they have to be, happen to be hiding on. Uh, there's the ensign. There's the whistle. There's the sparks flying and the wheels like whirlwinds. There's the old missionaries that I got to teach. I love them. Then you see in verse 12, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Notice he's not just assembling the outcasts of Israel. He's not just gathering together the dispersed of Judah. That's Israel, okay? God's covenant people. But what's he say at the beginning? Oh, this is an ensign for the nations. And nations actually is where in, in Judaism, they speak of the Gentiles. Any non-Jew is a Gentile. But what's the actual word they use for the Gentiles? The nations. Huh. So this ensign to the nations, we're not just gathering Jews, we're gathering Gentiles. We're gathering everyone. That's what the Abrahamic covenant was for. In thee and in thy seed. That's the chosen people. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Judah, Israel. It's the house of that, that, that chosen nation. But what's the promise? In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I only chose you so you would go out and choose everyone else to be chosen as well. And how are we chosen? By choosing God. So let's go raise the ensign, get the word out. In verse 13 and 14, as a result, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart. Reminds me of Jeroboam envying Rehoboam's temple and setting up false golden calves in Dan and Bethel himself. That's envy for you. But it will depart. And the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. No more enemies to worry about. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not vex Ephraim. That's, the brothers are getting along again. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. All those enemies. Philistines to the west, Assyrians to the east, or Syrians to the east as well. Edom, Moab, Ammon, oh, they caused you problems all along the way. And yet the day will come where Ephraim and Judah, Israel and Judah, those two northern southern kingdom, it's like the end of the Civil War. And we can get along together. In American history, they called it Reconstruction. It didn't go too, too well. In our day, we call, or in spiritual circles, we call it Restoration. And it's going beautifully. We've still got more work to do, though. But to have them become friends again and then conquer all their former enemies. Oh, it's beautiful. Then 15 and 16, end the chapter. The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod. Sound familiar? He's trying to get them to remember the exodus from Egypt, the parting of the waters, the crossing of the Red Sea. This gathering of Israel in the last days will be just as miraculous 
as, as that. In fact, Jeremiah, as we'll see in a while, will say it'll be even better, more epic. To be a part of that, and then he ends, there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like it was to Israel in the day when he came up out of the land of Egypt. A highway? This is more than just a straight and narrow path. This sounds like oh, mass transit. Well, there's a lot of people to gather. So let's, let's go gather them. And no matter where they might be, even off in Assyria somewhere, the wicked world, feeling forgotten, not remembering their true identity, remind them and bring them home. And once you do, you and they together will have reason to rejoice. And that's where chapter 12 comes in. It's this beautiful song of redemption, this song of rejoicing. So like we channeled the Psalms to raise our praise to God, Isaiah 12 gives us a chance to do that again. Verse 1, In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, I understand that, and you had every good reason to, thine anger is turned away. The first arm has <laughs> been replaced by the second. Thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. I love those phrases. God comforts, he strengthens, he saves. And all this, these dead stumps, where, how will the new growth come? Living water. And to be able to draw it out of the wells of salvation, wells that never run dry, oh, you get to draw it out with joy. And so keep singing joyfully, verse 4 through 6. In that day, here's this, like the second verse in this psalm of praise. In that day shall ye say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. This short little chapter. Oh, so rich with rejoicing, so deep, that deep well with praise, and the Lord deserves it. We've seen this just even in these short 12 chapters today. This segment of Isaiah, part of a much larger whole, and yet to go from God calling them out back in chapter 1, uh, making his case against Israel, to get to a point where, thanks to a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son, Emmanuel, thanks to a child being born unto us and a son being given, a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and an everlasting father and a prince of peace, peace coming because children are taught to become children of God. A, a, a branch growing from a, a root, a rod emerging from a stump, a restoration coming out of an apostasy. It's amazing what we get to be a part of. 
And so what's, the, what's, the, what's our, our purpose there in chapter 12? Let the world know. Oh, praise the Lord. His name will be exalted. He's done excellent things. Make mention that his name is exalted. I am honored by the opportunity I have been given to make mention of the name of God. To bear witness of the promise of a Messiah who has come and will yet come again. What's happening among the Israelites and the people of Judah in Isaiah's day is hard. War is brewing. Wickedness seems to be reigning. Apostasy and unfaithfulness, people struggling in their faith, sound familiar? And what's Isaiah's promise? Despite all that, there's hope if you trust in the Lord. There are prophets still at the helm. And if you will simply heed their words and come unto Christ, then we, like they, can draw living water out of the wells of salvation. If you ever feel faint in these dark and dim days, then go back to the well and bring forth water that you can drink and never thirst again.